Reveille, reveille, donks. Look at us now, tip to tip. This is our life. This is our passion. That's the spirit we bring to this show. I'm Luke Thomas. I'm Brian Campbell. This is Morning Combat. No, no crazy Joker laugh slash Pepe Le Pew laugh. If there's no BC here today, unfortunately, but MK does in fact carry on. Hello, everyone. It is Friday, the 17th of June, 2022, and it is time for Morning Combat. I am merely one half of your hosting duo. My name is Luke Thomas, joined by uh, our friend in the great white north, uh, Aaron Bronsetter. Aaron, I don't know if you know what we call you on the show now. Have you heard what we call you? For a while, it was the Canadian MMA journalist as a, an allusion to, a, you know, a, a mystery man. But yes, uh, no, I don't. What's what, what's the nickname? So rather than LeBron, of course, who goes for LeBron James, you, you would be like the well, you're, obviously you're not French, but because you're Canadian, you would be like and forgive my French accent, LeBron, something like that. Is, is my French OK? You'd be like La Space Braun. How's how does that feel? Well, your French is probably just as good as mine is, so uh, we we can take that. And you know, in the spirit of BC not being here, I'll give you a, I'll give you all a oh, ho, 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 yeah, uh, in his honor. I don't know what the uh, Connecticut jam band enthusiast is up to today, but if I get an invitation for MK, it's any day. So I I appreciate you reaching out. AB is always happy to fill in for BC or LT. So thank you for having me. Uh, we're very happy to have you. B, uh, BC is here in D.C. We're supposed to see each other later, so we'll see how that goes. But, uh, of course, if you don't know Aaron Bronsetter, he is from TSN in Canada. And uh, we got a lot to get to today. Let's see. We've got the UFC Austin card. We've got PFL, which is tonight. We've got Better BF versus Smith and some news and notes every which way. So thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. Hit subscribe as well. If you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, we appreciate that just the same. But leave us a nice review if you would be so inclined. Um, Aaron, a uh, real question for you to start things off. If folks are trying to get more familiar with your content, obviously you're on social, but what do you do at TSN for folks who may not be super familiar? What exactly is it that you do around here? Well, I am uh, the content editor for the UFC uh, and MMA content at TSN. And uh, I do all kinds of different essays for Sports Center appearances on Sports Center. If you're in Canada, you can you can watch all of that, and you can go to tsn.ca/ufc for all of my coverage. As you mentioned on social media, at Aaron Bronstetter on Twitter is kind of where I amalgamate uh, all of my content. So you can follow me there and, and catch everything all in one place. How, how does it work? Because sometimes I see that UFC and obviously UFC and TSN are partners in Canada. But I have seen that sometimes can like events end up on Fight Pass there, or maybe I'm misreading it. What is the rule with how events get aired in Canada for UFC? Yeah, so it's in our uh, rights deal that certain events, usually the off-prime events, end up on Fight Pass in Canada. So, you know, for example, I think it was Volkov and Rosenstreich start, had a 1 p.m. Eastern, I guess, start time. So those kind of events typically end up on, on Fight Pass. So we have all but, I think, four or five events uh, every year. So, you know, TSN is the home for the UFC for the most part, but uh, Fight Pass does have some events exclusively. You guys don't have to worry about ESPN Plus? No, we don't have ESPN Plus. We don't have any ESPN uh, channels up here. In fact, ESPN, I believe, is a... Uh, we're an affiliate of ESPN, technically, so all of the ESPN stuff stays in the U.S., and TSN has covered up here in Canada. And so for pay-per-views... You guys buy them through TSN? I'm sorry for the 20 questions. I'm just actually kind of curious. No, no worries. It's through the cable provider. So just like the way that it used to be in the U.S. So if you have Comcast in the U.S., you'd order it through them. It's the same way up here. 
Got it. Okay. And you can order right. well, through of the UFC, uh, you know, Fight Pass platform as well. Right, right. Okay, fair enough. All right, so as a reminder for folks, uh, Showtime is the label that pays. You can go to Showtime.com, get a 30-day free trial. If you like it, you can keep it. If not, you can bounce. Of course, if you want some merch, that's a very BC shirt you're wearing, although yours is a little more stylish, Aaron. But if you want some BC merch with a stupid face on it, you can go to morningcombat.store. It's a great place to get started there. And of course, don't want you to forget we have an email on the show as well, morningcombat at gmail.com. Now, we won't do dead wrongs today, but of course, if you want to submit those, that's the email address, plus Wednesday's fan subs and anything else if you want to get in touch with the producers of the show. That's the best place to do it. Um, LeBron, if you are ready, my friend, we can get going here. You good to go? Yes, sir. Let's go. Let's hit it. All right. Topic number one. This is where we typically start, which is with UFC content. Uh, they, they've stopped calling them. Well, actually, no, I'll just do this. UFC Austin or UFC on ESPN 37. That is tomorrow. In your main event, Calvin Cater, who currently sits at about a minus 225 favorite to Josh Emmett, plus 190. Pretty close in odds, although for MMA, that's somewhat far apart. Aaron, if I had to ask you what this fight hinges on, what does it hinge on? I think it hinges on the power of Josh Emmett. I mean, he's got the most knockdowns in the history of the featherweight division. And if you look at knockdowns per 15 minutes, he's only behind Conor McGregor in terms of featherweight history. So that's what the big X factor is in every Josh Emmett fight. And Josh Emmett's been an underdog in almost all of his featherweight fights. Uh, I think he was a favorite in his very first one. Was a small favorite over Dan Ige. But most of the time, he's been an underdog. And I mean, look at his record at featherweight. It's been fantastic. Uh, aside from the, the Jeremy Stevens loss, he's been doing great things. Now, I found a, an awesome stat this week that I've been talking about to really anybody who will listen. It, the current top 10 featherweights. Let me, let me have you guess. How many times have the current top 10 featherweights been stopped inside the distance in the last three years? Now, I don't know if you saw this tweet of mine, but if you don't know, please uh, render a guess. Okay. Top 10 featherweights stopped inside the distance. So Korean Zombie's been stopped inside the distance. Ortega's been stopped inside the distance. I'm trying to think further down. Um, maybe just two or three times. Is that it? In the last three years, there's been one stoppage inside the distance of somebody who's in the featherweight top 10. It's the zombie against um, Volkanovski. It's the only, only time a top 10, current top 10 featherweight has been stopped inside the distance in the last three years, which is just a remarkable stat because this is just such a murderer's row. I think this might be the best top 10 of any division ever when you look at it from top to bottom. You've got a couple undefeated guys in there. Volkanovski's never lost in the UFC. Holloway is Holloway, one of the greatest of all time. And I mean, if you look at... What happens when these guys get to the very top? Holloway is shutting everybody down. So it's been hard to build new contenders in this division. In fact, I think if Calvin Cater wins on Saturday, he might be the next best guy in line in terms of credentials to get a title fight. So it's, it's just a very interesting division right now because there are so many good high-caliber fighters. You know, what's interesting to me is I just feel like at 37, we all kind of know what to say about Josh Emmett, which is it's going to be now or never, right? I mean... Which is not to say that if he loses here, it's impossible to get the title, but certainly it would dramatically cut back on his ability to do so. On the other hand, you know what's kind of interesting about him? This would easily be the biggest win of his career if he gets it. This would be the one that kind of gets him over what I would call something like the visibility hump. Because in terms of the credibility hump, it doesn't mean he is a top contender yet. There still is Rodriguez there. There's still Ortega up there. They're going to lock horns here pretty soon. But if you look at his wins, and the last one's Michael Johnson. It was an incredible win. The Bektich win, an incredible win. Burgos, Ige. These were all very good wins, but I don't know that they really 
planted him in the consciousness of fans as like the guy to watch or a very important guy to watch. Would you agree beating Cater, not merely by virtue of the place he occupies in the rankings, although that would do it too, but in terms of beating somebody, and again, not for credibility, but for visibility, it feels like beating Calvin Cater in the main event on something like this, that actually might truly finally push him into, let's say, greater fan consciousness. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's a main event. It's it's a pretty big fight card in Austin, Texas. And the wins that you point out, they were really good at the time, but they haven't aged quite as gracefully as you would like. Danny Gay is an awesome fighter. Shane Burgos, awesome fighter. But they've really been touch and go in terms of their careers since then. A win over a guy like Calvin Cater. Who's beaten Calvin Cater in the UFC, right? I mean, it's just it's just Holloway, I think. Does he have another loss that I'm forgetting? But it's, he's just such a tough Mega guy. So tough. Zabit. Oh, Zabit, right, yeah, yeah. And that was a fight that we, it looked like it was going to be turning in the opposite direction. We'll talk about Zabit, I'm sure, a little bit later on. But that fight looked like, had there been a fourth and fifth round, it might have gone Cater's way, right? So Cater, his stock, I think, actually rose off of that fight. This guy's just so tough, so durable. Nobody's been able to stop him inside the distance in the UFC. If Josh Emmett can do that, and I mean, if anybody's got the power to do it, it is Emmett, that would speak volumes about how good this guy is. For me, I want to see what you think about this. I am very curious to see... I mean, Calvin Cater's durability, certainly in the Max fight, was extraordinary. I mean, truly extraordinary, which, I, you know, was it's a good thing that he's that durable. It's a bad thing that the beating was as bad as it was. But I, after something like that, I was like, I, don't, I wasn't sure how he was going to come back. And then he has a really great performance against a heavy hitter in Giga Chikadze. But Josh Emmett is a very different kind of heavy hitter. I think he's probably pound for pound, maybe the single hardest puncher at featherweight. I really believe that. And so I wonder, do you believe that what happened against Max softened him for future punishment or that he was able to withstand it by virtue of still being somewhat relatively young that, yes, certainly Emmett has big power, but you're actually not so worried about Cater's lights being put out? How do you perceive those two, A, the current threat, and B, what happened previously? Yeah, you know, I think that's really the big question going into this fight. And it's why it's such an intriguing fight, because I think statistically you can say that Emmett is the heaviest hitter at featherweight, maybe even ever. I mean, I, I don't know if I'd put him ahead of Connor, because Connor was just shutting everybody off at featherweight. But I think that when you look at this particular fight and you look at the history of Calvin Cater in those last two fights, because you mentioned Holloway, but that Giga fight was a tough fight. I mean, that, he took a couple of the patented Giga kicks in that fight and was able to stick with it. If he can go five rounds with Emmett, I mean, his durability would be really otherworldly if, if Emmett's able to drop him or do something or land one of those big shots. That's really what the interesting thing is here. And I mean, Emmett's a two-to-one underdog here. I love Calvin Cater. I think he's an amazing fighter, but I think the value is strongly on the side of Josh Emmett, given the circumstances here with the damage that Cater's taken in those last two fights and the power that Emmett brings to the table. I don't know if I'd be comfortable laying minus 235 or whatever it is right now on Calvin Cater. That's a really big number. Okay, but uh, playing devil's advocate. Not saying I agree with this position, but I want to hear what your response would be. Right, here's the problem, though. As good as Josh Emmett has been, we know that, for example, in the Jeremy Stevens fight, he took hellacious damage. It, it damaged the, uh, the feeling in his mouth. I think still half of his gum line he doesn't have feeling in, or at least for a while he didn't. Um, and he's 37. 37 is a I mean, it is 37 at 170 pounds is old. 37 at 155 is very old. At 145... I don't even know how doable that is. How do you perceive 37 years of age? Granted, we know he trains hard and all that good stuff, 
But that is statistically not a great place to be. Well, he also doesn't have a lot of miles, though. And I spoke to him this week, and I think he said he started his amateur career. His first amateur fight, he had a 26, right? So it's not like this is a guy whose body is, is completely weathered, that he's taken a ton of punishment over the years. The Stevens fight, like you mentioned, though, that's, that's a big one. And the one thing at 37 that does go away is your timing, regardless of how many miles you have on you. Your timing is never going to be quite as good as it was when you were a little bit younger. Your speed isn't going to be what it was. And, at, like again, at the smaller weight classes, like you mentioned, at featherweight, 37 is not a great place to be. I mean, he's older than Aldo is right now, right? Like, you know, <laughs> Aldo seems like he's been around forever. And if you're talking about fight miles, Aldo has them. But, yeah, Josh Emmett, right now, I think this is it's this is it for him. I, I don't think that he's ever going to get a title shot if he can't win on Saturday. And I'm sure he must know those stakes going into this one. I'm curious to see how the fight itself plays out. Again, I think you're right. It, the Richard Mann of Fightmetric had a great article about it. Basically arguing, you should, everyone should read it for itself. I tweeted it out. But basically what he argues is if this is a fight that predominantly takes place at distance, and we all know Calvin Cater has a really, really good jab. Obviously, he does a pretty decent volume as well, landing 5.19 strikes per minute. That is his sort of fight to lose at that point. But here's the really, really interesting part, which was Richard Mann found that if Calvin Cater cannot just land continuously, but if he can diminish the output of his opponents uh, simultaneously, then he has a strong chance to win. And of course, everyone's like, well, yeah, no shit, genius. If you land a lot and then they don't <laughs> land a lot, you win. But that's actually not what the stats show. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Meaning, if your offense has a suppressive effect to the point where his, his opponents, I think it was landing a little bit under five strikes per minute, something like that, um, he's undefeated whenever that happens. He's actually never lost in a condition where he has adequately suppressed that kind of uh, output. Well, it just so happens to be that Josh Emmett lands 4.28 strikes per minute uh, which would be technically lower. So if Calvin Cater can avoid the big shot, stuff a jab in his face, and I'm going to say avoid the takedown, and he's got 90% takedown defensive rate, seems like this is Calvin Cater's fight to lose unless we go back to what we said before, right, Aaron, which was how much can he actually tolerate damage from a big puncher who might be able to land. Is that is that a fair assessment in your mind? Yeah, I think so. And again, looking at the stats, these are the two in terms of active featherweights, guys that have the least bottom time of anybody in the division right now. So I think that that's important, too. I think that this fight is contested almost entirely on the feet. And I think that if Cater can keep the volume on him, it's really his fight to lose. But again, that great X factor, that big weapon that Josh Emmett has, is something that you can't really look at statistically in, in terms of how it'll land. Because it can land at any time, and it can put anybody's lights out. You, you talk about Holloway. You talk about Giga. These guys are, are, are solid volume guys. Giga more of a precision guy. But that power, that X factor that Emmett carries into a fight, nobody else at featherweight really has that one-punch knockout power that he can bring to the table. And if Calvin gets reckless or he gets hit, and he does tend to get hit, you just never know what's going to happen. I would lean Cater in this fight. I think that Cater, again, I think it's his fight to lose. It's just that one big weapon. He needs to avoid that at all costs. And it's easier said than done against a guy like Josh Emmett. All right, last question on this, and we'll start talking about the other fights on the card, namely... The three biggest pairings in terms of fights at featherweight currently will be this fight. It would be Ortega and Rodriguez, who I think are going to fight in Long Island here coming up after UFC 276. And then, of course, at UFC 276, you have Max and Volkanovski. Now, we always ask this game where who would UFC prefer to win? And the answer is they're playing with house money because all six guys are signed to them. It's not like they're co-promoting with Bellator or something. So they are going to benefit no matter what. But if you had a sense about what kind of permutations they want. Do they want Volkanovski to win and take on a set of fresh challengers? 
by virtue of the growth in the Australian market? Or would they like to see Max recapture gold, do something incredible if he was able to do it? And then you would have to do a, potentially a series of rematches thereafter. How do you think the UFC looks at the way this featherweight division should go? Well, I think you're right on that. I think that they are kind of playing with house money. Any real outcome that can happen here, they have options. Even if Emmett wins or Cater wins, if they decide they want to go with Cejudo as the next challenger, should Volkanovski win? Like, I don't think anybody would be upset about a Cejudo-Volkanovski fight either to see if Cejudo can win a championship in a, in a very ambitious third division. But I do think that, you know, the Holloway-Volkanovski fight, I think the thing that they fear the most there is that Holloway ekes out a decision. Because you would have to probably make a fourth fight there. And I don't know, mm. in a division, like I mentioned, that has the top 10 that's as stacked as the featherweight division, you really want to see new challengers rise. And I think that is the one thing that they would fear in this division right now, is that Holloway ekes out a 48-47 split decision kind of thing, where they almost have to do a rematch, because Volkanovski has never lost at featherweight before, and he's beaten Max twice, right? I think they would have to go in that direction. Am I wrong if, if Holloway wins a very, very narrow decision? I think it's entirely possible. So then let me ask it this way. Oh, by the way, you asked, like, who wouldn't want to see Cejudo and Volkanovsky <laughs> raise his hand? It's not like I don't want to see it, Aaron. It's just here's my point on that. I really like Henry. I really respect what he's done. I don't care about all that cringe shit. Like, that stuff was annoying. But just in terms of what he's been as an athlete, he's, you know, it's just been a remarkable journey to watch watch what he's been able to accomplish and now as a coach and everything else. Like, I'm glad he wants to come back and fight. I think it's nothing but a win for the UFC, a win for whatever division he's in, and certainly a win for fans and media. So to make that quite clear. But I would, if you know, of all the possible choices about like weird fights we could make, if Volkanovski wins, I'd actually rather see him go to 155 and see if he can't fight for a title. Do you have any interest in that? Assuming assuming he wins in like at 276 in like a non-controversial way or something. Yeah, you know, I have interest in all of it, but at the same time, you're kind of uh slowing the growth of both divisions really even if you put Cejudo in there at, at featherweight you're taking away the opportunity from a challenger who's probably earned it like a Calvin Cater if he wins this weekend and then on the flip side at lightweight there are so many different possible challengers a lot of up-and-comers I mean look at next weekend's main event between Gamrot and Sarukian those guys right. I mean those guys are majorly on the come up plus you've got Islam you've got Benil Dariush who people keep forgetting about this guy's been on a tear there's just a lot of options in both divisions I think that there's actually less options in the featherweight divisions as a, as a result of these guys beating each other all the time, as a result of Holloway shutting the door on Yair and shutting the door on Cater. The, the limit, you know, there's limitations on those options, and you have these guys like Evloev and Bryce Mitchell coming up. That kind of would be the best move for Suhudo, in my opinion. You put him up against Holloway, if Holloway falls short against Volkanovski. That would, I think, be the best option for what you do with Henry Cejudo if he is serious about challenging for a third divisional title. Put him against one of these sharks at featherweights and see if he can swim. Yeah, I love that idea too. Okay, last question on this. Of the four contenders, well, we're not going to count Max here. So we're going to count Brian, Ortega, Rodriguez, Calvin Cater, and Josh Emmett, of course, the last two are going to be in the main event tomorrow. Of those four names, who has, as it stands today, the greatest title-winning potential? Oh, title winning potential. I thought you were going to say a shot at the title. No, no. Um, wow, that's a great question. I think that Volkanovski is a really bad matchup for almost all of them. Cater might be the one because he can put volume on Volkanovski's stand with him, you know, can avoid getting taken down. I think that would probably be the closest fight, but I would have to favor Volkanovski against all of those guys. Uh, yeah. I think the the guy that has the best chance of beating Volkanovski is actually Max Holloway. <laughs> and I think that's probably what we're right. going to see in, in July is whether or not that's the case. I just think those two guys 
have put such a chasm between them and the rest of the division that that's what's making it really tough for there to be new challengers coming up in this featherweight division. I think that's almost why you need to really expedite the paths of guys like Evloev and Mitchell and put them against these top guys and see if they can establish themselves as a contender. Because right now they're kind of in the bottom half of that top 10. They really need new contenders to arise in this division. For sure. I I will tell you on a personal level, if Emmett knocks out Cater, I I would be inclined to like move him up pretty quickly. But of course, that's a major, major ask. But the fight that I guess I have interest in, and to, I share your assessment, I would favor uh, Volkanovski to beat all of these guys. I would be kind of curious to see how the stand-up battle goes between Rodriguez and Volkanovski. Now, Volkanovski is so good, he could, of course, make it a ground affair. He's got tr- tremendous ground and pound and sub-defense and everything else, which we saw in the Ortega fight. However, the stuff he was able to do to Max on the feet was a bit of an eye-opener for me. I would like to see if it's at all possible if they ever get down there. A Volkanovski-Rodriguez fight to me is pretty intriguing as well. Just a personal thing. It's interesting stylistically. I just worry that Volkanovski would just absolutely drown him. Like, you look back at the Edgar fight, and that was a long, long time ago. Uh, You know, I I will concede that. But Edgar was just able to completely drown Yair Rodriguez on the ground. And we just haven't seen Yair Rodriguez deal with much on the ground as of late. Holloway wasn't going to take him down. I just think Volkanovski might be able to make his life absolutely miserable if he's able to take it down. So... Mm. It is an interesting stylistic matchup, of course, when you when you think of it as a battle of ranges. If Yair can stay out of the range of Volkanovski and keep it at a distance, I think that he could have some success there for sure. All right. Also on this card, your co-main event. This was supposed to be a little while ago, and then Cerrone got sick, and then they pushed it here. Donald Cerrone is back in action against Joe Lazon. Funnily enough, uh, Donald Cerrone is on quite the losing streak, or overall the body of work in the last, what is it, five, six fights has not gone his way. There was the one no contest previously. Although that was, you know, obviously for a different issue. But neither here nor there. He's not won, I think, since 2019, since beating Al Iaquinta. Quinta. Okay, he is still favored to win, Aaron Bronstetter. He's got a minus 165 to Lazone's plus 140. It's not like I don't believe that Donald Cerrone, in theory, couldn't beat Joe Lazon. I just don't really know what's left of Donald Cerrone after, and I've said this before many times, You can look at all of the injuries and the knockouts and then the tough fights he's had, and that's one thing. But the guy lives a very, let's call it, active lifestyle and has had an insane amount of injuries outside of the octagon. Really, I am am a little bit surprised. I will tell you, the odds are close, Aaron. I got to say, I'm a little bit surprised that he's favored here. I'm kind of with you on that. You know... He made the weight this morning. I was wondering how he would do on the scales this morning because we know that it's a bit of a grind for Cerrone to make weight in the first place. He was making weight. I guess he had made weight for the event in Phoenix, what, six weeks ago, right? So he was able to do that, but then he fell ill, was unable to fight. And then since then, he's gone to Thailand and has been filming a movie and apparently has been training with Sasha Palatnikov out there, right? So I just, if there's anybody who can take his eyes off of the game and still succeed, Cerrone's one of those guys. It just depends on which Cerrone shows up. Like he says, it's either going to be Cowboy or it's going to be Donald. And that, that's the risk in taking Cerrone as a favorite at this juncture. And Joe Lozon, he also has had a pretty rough streak if you look at his recent fights. He does have that great win over JSP, who we've seen Jonathan Pierce has really started to look good in his career, but... Yeah, I think this should be more of an even-money coin flip type fight because you just don't know what you're going to get from either of these guys at this point in time. The thing is, if you ask me for like who was better at their very best, I think Cerrone reached a little bit higher, right? Oh, Cerrone, for sure. obviously, great kickboxer. He's always had a very good guard, very underrated ground game. He's been a submission threat. He's obviously scored submissions. 
Um, he could he could punch your lights out. He had a great you know Muay Thai game. He was good in the clinch. I think he's obviously fought. I mean, everyone who they could possibly put in front of him. So the upside in terms of what they were ultimately able to accomplish at their very best, I would favor Cerrone. And also like the thing that Joe does the very best himself, which is the groundwork. That's something that Cerrone has shown to be surprisingly resilient in. And again, I think uh, has some abilities there. It's just that with the damage and everything else, you just don't know when the bottom is going to drop out on guys like this. Plus, Cerrone, I'm not saying that uh, Joe Lazon is a spring chicken. I watched his pro, his uh, UFC debut at a Hooters in Richmond, Virginia back in the day when he knocked out Jens Pulver. But Don mm-hmm. Cerrone is almost 40. He's almost 40 years old, 39 years old. Jesus, like... What do you think happens here, win or lose? Obviously, with a loss, I think the UFC probably goes, uh, it might be time. Do you think, do they want more of him at 40-plus in the UFC? I think he could be both of their last fights, but I think if Cerrone looks good, he'll probably continue. I just think he loves doing this so much, whereas Lozon's kind of had one foot in, one foot out for the last couple of years. I'm very interested to see how this one plays out because, like you said, the bottom could really drop off at any given time. These guys both have a ton of miles on them. In fact, this matchup has the two most, I guess, the most combined UFC experience in terms of number of fights that any two fighters have had in UFC history. And if you look at the amount of fight night bonuses these guys have had, which a lot of them are from being in in wars, uh, you look at that, and I think I did the stat on this. The two of them combined have more fight bonuses then the rest of the this card, you know, has uh, in totality combined, and they have a hundred less fights combined than the rest of this card. So mm. it's just these guys have put on a show for so many years. I, I I don't really know what to expect from this fight, which is kind of what makes it fun, honestly, as a co-main event. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens because there is kind of an air of mystery about how this one goes. Some of the stats to pay attention to here: very good chance this one does not go the distance. Average fight time for Cerrone nine minutes and forty four seconds. Joe Lazan, seven minutes and 53 seconds. So these guys basically, on average, don't see the third round. Something to keep in mind. A bit of a, a height advantage, 6'1 to 5'10 for Joe Lazan. Slight reach advantage for Cerrone, 73. I think the jab, if he puts it in your face, could be valuable there. We'll have to see. The big one that stands out to me, the two of them, I'll say to you, Aaron, that stand out to me. First one, the, the striking differential for Joe Lazan is not great. He lands 2.84 strikes per minute, which is below average for, uh, uh, well, certainly for a ranked fighter, although he's not ranked, but strikes absorbed, 5.39. He has a near three integer negative differential. That is wow. very, very high. The other one is, and this will be interesting to see how this, this is to me the interesting part, is to what extent can Joe Lazan pursue and have success in the ground game? Because as we know, we've said before, Cerrone is very good on the ground. Uh, but Joe Lazan averages 2.39 takedowns per 15 minutes. It seems to me, Aaron, he doesn't have to get the takedown and hold it continuously. But I would submit, true or false, if the takedown, or at least the threat of the takedown, isn't a real part of his offense and it's not working, I have a hard time seeing how he wins under those conditions. Yeah, unless he's able to come out and blitz Cerrone early, because we know that Cerrone's kind of a, a slow starter. I think that's really one of the paths that Joe Lozon can take. I was surprised when I saw the odds on Lozon by submission. I think it's around 9-1, to which really surprised me because I think that if Mm. Lozon's going to win this match, that's a pretty likely outcome. If you were to guess how does Joe Lozon win this match, I know Cerrone's ground skills are very underrated, but that's how Lozon wins a, a large percentage of his fights, if I'm not mistaken. He has, you know, some good KOs as well, but I think that's probably how he wins is the first round... And if you're looking to bet this fight, you wait and you see how that first round goes. Because if Lozon blows out Cerrone in the first, 
I think you have a good live betting opportunity with Cerrone heading into the second, where he starts to really pick up his game, typically is, is late in the, in the fight. So it's kind of an interesting matchup in that regard. But I think you're right. I think the takedown is going to have to be an integral part of Lozon's game if he wants to get a win here. I got to tell you, I find the people that bet between rounds, I think that's like ultimate degen. Like, <laughs> to me, it's like you want to put in a bet before the fight takes place. I mean, there couldn't be anything more apple pie than that. But, you know, you're waiting between rounds on live odds, and I know they do it. I know they do it. But I'm to me, that always is like, wow, man, you really, you really got some problems at home, huh? That's just my personal take. <laughs> But hey, if you can um, find good value, good value is good value. If you're at the grocery store and they've got blueberry mini wheats for 99 cents as opposed to standard mini wheats for 2.99, even though the blueberry ones are, are might not be up to snuff, you still save the two dollars, right? So if you if you can find that value in the live betting market, I mean, hey, you, you got to grab it. I guess so. Value is value. It's a fair point. The rest of the uh, <laughs> just as a reminder, the last five fights for each, Cerrone had a loss to Gaethje, then McGregor, then Pettis. I mean, what are you going to expect? Those are tough fights. Had the no contest against Nico Price, and then the loss to Alex Morneau. That was the one where you could kind of feel like the worm was turning because, you know, you lose to those other three guys. Well, okay, those are, you know, pretty tough fights. The Pettis one uh, was a little bit weird because he was on the end of his run there too. But certainly, um, the, you know, and obviously Tony Ferguson before that. Those are, you know, uh, understandable losses. Last five for Joe Lozon, of course, he's had a lot of time off. Was Marcin Held, Stevie Ray, Clay Guida, uh, Grutzemacher, and then in, your, in the last fight, he has the win over Pierce, as you indicated. Um, all right, also on this card, and this is the one. Actually, you know what? I'll come back to it. Do you have any strong thoughts on Tim Means versus Kevin Holland? Kevin Holland trying to get right did in his last contest against Cowboy Oliveira. Took him a little bit of time to kind of get right a little bit. I think in the second round, he was able to do so. Give me your sense of Tim Means, because here's why I feel about Tim Means. Tim Means is one of these guys where if you've been watching him for a while, dude, he, you can beat him. The very, very best guys beat him. But, dude, if you're not one of the very best guys, he's going to fuck you up. He has phenomenal Muay Thai, vicious elbows. One of those guys out of Albuquerque that always kind of stayed at Fit NHB where Carlos Condit started and kind of moved over to Jackson's. But Fit NHB has been you know, one of the premier teams from early on in MMA's uh, history. Um, size this one up for me. Holland versus Means. How do you see it? Yeah, I just think that Means is a very tough out, like you said, for anybody. But Holland at 170 does look like a different animal. He looked great against Cowboy Oliveira in that last fight. This is going to be an interesting one because, you know, I, I was talking to Kevin Holland and I said to him, I think you're going to have a size advantage here. You used to fight at 185. He used to fight at 55. And he said, no, no, I saw Tim Means in the hotel. And he goes, yeah, I think he's taller than I am. And I don't know how that guy ever made 155 pounds. So maybe I'm overestimating the fact that Holland's coming down and Means, I guess, has been up at 170 for several years now. But this is going to be a very interesting fight because Tim Means is not somebody who backs down from any sort of fight. And that's the kind of guy... The, the ones that put pressure on Kevin Holland are the ones that tend to do well. So this is an interesting one. Holland, a massive favorite in this fight as well. I think that, you know, he's become really a household name among true UFC fans that, that watch week in and week out. You'll recognize the name Kevin Holland. For those that have been watching for a long time, though, Tim Means, we know what we're getting with this guy. He's a nasty fighter. He's in your face. He's good on the ground. He's great on the feet. And he doesn't go away. So this is going to be certainly an interesting fight. I would be surprised if either guy gets a finish in this one. I think this one goes to a decision. I think it's going to be a very gritty fight. Super gritty. In fact, it's kind of interesting. They've got Holland listed at 6'3 and Tim Means at 6'2. So who the hell knows about that? And I bring that up to say, at least on paper... For whatever that is worth, Kevin Holland has a six-inch reach advantage, 81-inch arms at 170 pounds. 
to Tim Means is 75. I've never thought of Tim Means as being a T-Rex kind of guy. In fact, he's always had a pretty good jab, as a matter of fact. But that's something to pay attention to as well. The big number, and this is no surprise to anyone who's been paying attention. And by the way, of course, Kevin Holland, it should be noted, is a black belt in jiu-jitsu under Travis Luter. Travis Luter has, if he doesn't have your respect, then I don't know what, you know, I don't know what you're <laughs> waiting for. That guy is amazing at jiu-jitsu. But this is the big one. And I do, and it should be noted, Tim Means is not like the takedown guy, but he can do it when it's necessary. He does have that capability. Takedown defense for Kevin Holland at a low 49%. That is that is exceedingly low. Tim Means is kind of known, Aaron, as a guy who can make it a rough fight, you know, in the clinch, the elbows, the knees, everything else like that. But I got to say, if you've got an opponent with that kind of at least perceived weakness, do you think Tim Means makes the takedown, again, not the entire part of his game, but a forward part in this contest? Yeah, and it's not just that. We've seen that when Kevin Holland is on his back, if you're strong enough to keep him there, he will stay there. We saw that in the Derek Brunson fight. Right. We saw that in the Vittori fight. I think that that is a strategy that Means can implement. Now, how much stronger is Holland going to be on bottom against a guy that's not a huge 85-er like a Marvin Vittori or a Brunson? Like Those guys are much bigger, I think, in terms of, uh, in terms of width than you know, a Kevin Holland. They're much stronger guys, I would say, than Kevin Holland on the ground. But now that he's at 170, is that going to be the great equalizer for him? Where if he is on his back, he's going to be slippery. He's going to be able to maybe throw up submissions that he can actually uh, try, try to utilize to get up. Um, or, or maybe a sneaky triangle in there. I don't know. And I think that's what makes it so intriguing to see Holland down at 170 pounds is that there are a lot of question marks that we have not yet seen him have to face at 170 pounds, like being on his back and like having to get up. And when you mentioned Tim Means and you mentioned those elbows, if he can take Kevin Holland down and land some of those elbows on the ground or even land some of those elbows on the feet because you mentioned the reach advantage, but Kevin Holland isn't necessarily somebody who's known for, for making good use of that reach advantage necessarily. <laughs> he does it, I think, with his front kicks and trying to keep an opponent at distance. But he, he seems to have been integrating that a little bit more into his game lately. But early on, it seemed like he was more than happy to stay in the pocket with guys in exchange, getting the clinch with, with guys in exchange. That's why I think this is an interesting fight, because Tim Means, this is not a guy to be underestimated. And if, for whatever reason, Kevin Holland is getting in his own head and thinking that at 170 pounds, he's going to push a lot of these guys around, there's a pretty deep roster of guys at 170 pounds that are unranked, like a Tim Means, that can make a lot of noise. You know, it's interesting, too. Um, the first thing I'd say is MMA fans have a weird relationship with reach, which is to say... You know, John, like, like, for example, what was the one of the, and this was not just reach, this was height, but it was a combination of the two. One of the major criticisms of Stefan Struve was like, oh, he doesn't fight tall. He doesn't fight rangy in the way that he needs to. Then comes John Jones, who granted has like very long arms, even for his weight class. Fair enough. But he makes effective use of it. And I know everyone's like, what about the eye pokes? You can take away the eye pokes. He still makes effective use of his reach. It's all part of what he does. And then they kind of like, oh, he's only good because of it. It's like, well, well, no, but he he is better because he uses it effectively. So, like, they never can sort of decide whether or not reach is a good thing, and if people use it, that's a good thing. But here's the one I want to bring up, Aaron. This is another part of the game that's going to be interesting to see. Not just the takedowns to see what extent means go for goes for it, but pace, right? He lands over five strikes per minute. Now, that's not super high, but that's actually above average, even for ranked fighters. That's on the fairly high end. Kevin Holland just down at 3.84, which is somewhat below average. And the reason I bring that up is... You know, it's not like he puts on an insane pace, but the thing is for Kevin Holland, who is trying to fight in a more disciplined way, and you saw him get a bit of a slow start against Cowboy Oliver. He looked amazing in the end, to your point, but started off just a little bit slow. He's trying to have a more thoughtful way of approaching these fights. I do wonder what might happen if Tim Means tries to make him play speed chess with him and to what extent that lures him 
out of the more thoughtful, disciplined game, which, by the way, I think Kevin Holland can do those things. It will just be interesting to see what effect Means' pace on the feet has to the decision-making of Kevin Holland in response. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting point because I think that Kevin Holland is the wrong guy to play with in that kind of game because he's got sneaky power. Like, if, if you try to turn it into, a, you know, like you said, fast-paced chess, I think that Kevin Holland can, can sneak something in there that can find a finish against a lot of different people. His precision is really on point. Um, and I think that that would be an interesting game plan for Tim Means, and it's something that has worked for Tim Means in the past, for him to suffocate his opponents, to land a lot of strikes, to get in their face, to land elbows. That's been a very successful game plan for him, but against a guy like Kevin Holland, who hits guys at the end of his punches and, and can really put them out with, with something that you, when you look at his body type, it doesn't seem to be something that, you know, a skill that he would necessarily possess. It is a skill that he possesses, and we've seen him use it uh, time and time again. So that that's going to be a really interesting way for this fight to play out if Tim Means does make it that kind of a fight because I, I think that he might be at a disadvantage there. To me, I think it's going to be, uh, when you mentioned pacing, I think it's going to be fast pace, slow pace, fast pace, slow pace. I think he's going to change it up. I think that's what Tim Means could probably do to give uh, Kevin Holland some trouble is to really switch the paces uh, you know, uh, and, and change gears at his own will. Playing with the rhythm, uh, indeed, I think will be a big part of this. I just wonder. It means it's great. Whatever you watch, yeah. Whatever you watch a fight, and something like this will be extremely pertinent. Who is playing into whose rhythm, right? Who is following the other time? And some guys can follow another person's rhythm and still beat them. Kevin Holland might be one of those guys, but I wonder to what extent. This is the thing with Kevin Holland, right? Everyone talks about the takedown defense or this or that. He's super talented. But there are times I feel like he gets pulled into the terms being set by his opponent. And he still overcomes it more often than not, if you look at the totality of his record. I guess what I would like to see from him here is, how about you set the terms? You're the guy who's supposed to be better than this other guy. He is, in fact, favored by the odds makers to win. You know, for example, Habib had a very grappling-based game. But, dude, you were always fighting on Habib's terms. Always. You were always fighting by what he was dictating to you. You might fight it off, you might not, but you were answering for it. I would like to see Holland, at least in the standard department or however he decides to pursue this, set the terms and let's see what happens when the other guys have to play catch up to you. Yeah, I, you know, that's an interesting thought because he doesn't typically do that, but he's also really good at making adjustments, which is maybe why he chooses not to do that. He's really good at figuring out his opponent's timing, reading them, figuring out what they're going to do next, and being able to capitalize on that. That's kind of been what he's been great at, is being so opportunistic when he finds those openings. So maybe that's why he doesn't dictate that kind of pace or try to put something on his opponent that they need to respond to because he's just so good at thinking on his feet that that is interesting though I think that at at welterweight there's a better chance of him doing that than there would be at middleweight because at middleweight sure. he's so yeah. fast compared to the other middleweight that he's able to catch guys at welterweight I'm not sure how much that speed will translate I think it did against Cowboy Oliveira but Cowboy Oliveira has a lot of miles on him um, sadly no longer with the UFC I was surprised that they let him go because he always puts on exciting fights but uh, yeah this particular matchup that's what makes it so interesting is I think the rhythm of this fight is what's going to decide who wins it alright uh, listen we could go up and down this card this is a phenomenal card I've made this point a few times I'm sure you've noticed it as well which what not my point but this, the fact I'm about to say which is I'm so glad that the UFC is going on the road again because even when they take fight night cards on the road, they are so much more stacked. I mean, when, when they're at the apex and, you know, they've just got sort of a cadre of fans who are going to watch whatever they put on. I'm not saying that, they, I don't know, they kind of phone it in a little bit, but they're not phoning it in with this one. This is a phenomenal card. So I'm going to ask you, uh, LeBron, 
Give me a fight on this card you're really paying attention to that we haven't discussed yet. I like the Gregory Rodriguez-Julian Marquez fight. I think that one can really go in a variety of ways. Marquez is a really tricky fighter, and he sets a lot of traps for his opponents. Gregory Rodriguez, Robocop, uh, is, is such a fun fighter to watch. But sometimes he goes forward with reckless abandon. And I think against a guy as smart as Julian Marquez, that could end up being an error for him. So I want to see how Marquez responds to an opponent of this caliber. I think it's going to say a lot about where he's at in his career. I really both guys are at in their career when we find out what the outcome of this one is. Man, you could go a lot of different ways. Love that contest. I think that will open the main card if memory serves. Um, friend of the show, Adrian Yanez, taking on Tony Kelly is a hell of a bout. That will be, I guess, the main event of the prelims. Tony Kelly's not a friend to. of the show, Luke? Who? Tony Kelly is not a friend of the show? Not, not, not as it currently stands, no. No, okay. Um, but the one, the two fights I would have my eye on, and the one in particular that I wanted to just mention briefly, Demir Ismogulov taking on mm -hmm. Guram Kutatilazi. I Kuta think you're going to go with that one. Great fight. Yeah, dude. I mean, this one has, I mean, firecrackers written all over it. This, uh, Ismogulov, phenomenal jab, great distance management. Good. I mean, he can move on angles as he jabs, and he's got brilliant setups and counters. He did a number on Joel Alvarez when they fought in the standing department with, with his boxing in particular. And Kuta Teladze, out of MMA All-Stars, training partner of, obviously, Hamzat Chemaev. He's Georgian, obviously, uh, Chemaev is Chechen, but they've sort of become uh, good friends there in Sweden. And he's got a real Muay Thai game, but this is the part that really stands out to me. When Kuta Teladze gets taken down, he is super active underneath. I mean... Uh, in his first fight was against Mateus Gamrat. Gamrat was able to get him down fairly regularly, but couldn't do hardly shit with it because the guy underneath is good about shrimping back to guard. He's good about inverting for leg attacks. He's good about pushing his opponents off and standing. I'm telling you, I think it, both of them, but certainly one of them is going to fight for a UFC title at one time or another. I firmly believe that. Yeah, I think both these guys are awesome fighters, and they're one of these situations where we haven't seen them in a while, so maybe people forget. I mean, Kuta Deladze's one win in the UFC is against Mateusz Gamrot, who's headlining next week's card. That's how far long he's been right. away from the game, is that Gamrot was able to get into that position since then, right? So Ismagulov, to me, though, if you can't figure out his rhythm and you can't figure out how to get in, in close against him, he's going to pick you apart. He's a death-by-a-thousand paper cuts guy. And I think that he's one of the best in terms of employing that strategy. And you see, I mean, you look at Gennady Golovkin and a lot of these other guys from, from Kazakhstan that are able to just have such crisp technical striking. He falls into that category. He's just so good at picking people apart. And if you can't figure out a way to stop him from implementing his game plan, we talked about Kevin Holland the last time about how he's able to adjust. If you can't adjust to Demir Ismagulov, he is going to pick you apart and he's going to make it look easy. And that's a really, really tough ask for anybody in this division to beat a guy like this. This is a tough matchup for both these guys coming back off of a layoff. I, I'm really intrigued to see how this one goes because like you said, I think both these guys are a lot better than advertised. Both probably will be in the rankings. I don't know about fighting for a title one day, but I think both will one day be in the rankings in, in the Shark Tank that is the lightweight division. Oh, I have, I have a high upside for both of them. Ismogulov, I mean, obviously both are very well-rounded, but if you're, if you're unfamiliar with them out there watching, it would be sort of something like boxer versus kickboxer, where Kutetilazi, much better with Muay Thai, heavy, heavy body kicks, which is why he has to have good takedown defense and good scrambling, because you can catch those a lot. And then Ismogulov, just a phenomenal jab, fainting, good distance management. He tears people up with that drop. He dropped Tiago Moises with a jab, for crying out loud. 
So his timing is good. This one has got just banger written all over it. All right. In the interest of time, though, uh, Aaron, let's move on to topic number two. Now, there are two stories to this. We'll get to the more controversial one in just a second, but let's just start with the news itself. I think MMA Junkie was the first to report it, but other outlets have as well. Aljamain Sterling is expected to fight TJ Dillashaw at UFC 279 on September 10th. As it stands, we don't have a location for that event. And of course, Aljamain Sterling is in fact the UFC Bantamweight champion. So this would be, uh, I guess, his actually technically his second title defense. The first one being the rematch with Jan. Before we talk about Sterling's video he put out and some of the complaints he's had about pay, put that to the side for just a second. The fight itself. Aaron, you know as well as I do, there was a bit of a online movement. And I've seen the quote, remember years and years ago, there was the hashtag rally for Mark Hunt to get a title shot. It never went anywhere. And so it's just a lot of chatter. But there were some folks saying maybe Aldo should get the title shot against Sterling. They went with TJ Dillashaw. Do you like Dillashaw getting the title shot? I absolutely like Dillashaw getting the title shot. Because what more does he have to do? And I know that that, comp that uh, decision over Sanhagen was controversial, but you're talking about him coming back from two and a half years off and beating a guy as good as Corey Sanhagen. That, to me, as a guy who never lost the belt at 135 pounds, that should almost automatically get him the title shot. And I know that Aldo has been in the conversation, but Aldo had his opportunity against Piotr Jan and fell short. And now it looks like he's going to be facing Murad Dvalashvili. I don't know who advised him to take that fight, but I think that's a really <laughs> bad idea um, if he wants to maintain his standing in this division. Not that he has no chance against Murad Dvalashvili. It's just that's a nightmare opponent for just about anybody right now. He's almost like the bodyguard for Aljamain Sterling. Like if you get, he's like the uh, the Goro to the Shang Tsung. If you if you beat Dvalashvili, now you can probably get a title shot. But easier said than done. The guy's got four arms. Or was it how many arms did Goro have? Four, six? I don't remember. Too, but either too, way, too fucking many is the answer. Too many. But, I mean, that's what Dvalos really has in terms of his grappling. He will get you to the ground really quickly and hold you there and make your life very miserable. But, uh, yeah, I just think that Dillashaw absolutely should be getting the title shot. I know that I scored the fight for Sanhagen, but that doesn't matter at the end of the day. What matters is that he got the nod. He did it off of a long layoff. He looked good in that fight. It's not like, even though I gave it to Sanhagen, I don't think that uh, he, he, it was a lopsided win by any means. I just think that, you know, it was one of those things where one or two punches could have decided any of the, you know, a lot of those rounds. But I think you give Dillashaw the shot. You give him an opportunity to win back the title that he never lost, even though, of course, yeah, I mean, he did lose it as a result of USADA and all of that, but never lost it in the cage. I think it's the right decision. I, I have, I'm with you. I don't have even the slightest issue with this. And I'm, you know, and I also am with you. I, I kind of thought Sanhagen edged it out, but I recognize that it was close. You have to respect a scorecard for Dillashaw. And the fact that he was injured badly in that fight and still fought through it and was as competitive as he was, especially late in the contest, was extremely admirable. More to the point, the thing that always gets me is I was like, we're gonna give a we're gonna give a title shot to a steroid cheat. Was like, well, first of all, he didn't take steroids, he took EPO, number one. Number two, this is the point. They gave him a two-year suspension at age 33. He lost two years where it's not like that's the middle of your prime, but to have to get lose that time, granted, you can heal from stuff. But that's a lot of your really important competitive window that's just gone now. Has to kick things off at 35, which is old for Bantamweight. He served all of his time. He came back against a top contender. And yes, it was close, but he won. Why is there this need out there among not just the fan base, some of the media and fighters as well, where it's like, well, you know, now that his time has served, he still has to be punished in some kind of way. No, no, no. The two years off was the punishment. That's it. Now he gets to start exactly as, not like everybody else, but I would argue from a pretty advantageous position by virtue of the fact that you just raised as well, no one ever took the title from him. USADA did, but none of the other jabronis that fought him 
could do it. And so this is my point. If you serve your time, you fight a top contender, you get your hand raised, I would also say he's probably got the more celebrity factor of other bantamweight contenders, which if you're Sterling, raises the overall visibility of this fight. I I, I really don't understand the complaints. I got to be honest with you. They seem overwrought to me. And here's the other part, Aaron. You would agree with this. This is a very competitive fight. Super competitive. Oh, incredibly competitive fight, because how is Aljo going to win? He's going to out-wrestle TJ? I think TJ has the advantage on the feet in terms of the boxing. So, this, I mean, again, it's a 35-year-old Dillashaw, maybe 36 at this point in time, so age is not on his side. But we know how fierce of a competitor TJ Dillashaw is. I think this is going to be a very, very close matchup. And right now, the bantamweight division, I mean, these guys are putting out more bangers than Stankonia. We've got uh, the, the Cruz and uh, Marlon Vera rumored match. You've got uh, the Sanhagen against Song Yadong rumored match. I mean, these guys are these guys are churning out the hits right now. So kudos to uh, Sean Shelby and, and crew for sitting down in that war room and putting together uh, hit after hit after hit in the bantamweight division because it's hard to go wrong in that division as is. But I like a lot of these matchups that they're coming up with in the lab. I got to tell you, did you see the the Rolling Stone top 200 albums of all time? I'm not even trying to do, uh, Andreas Hale made this point. I'm, I swear to God, I'm not doing a diss on um, who, who uh, Cardi B. Her, I think it was her uh, yeah, Invasion, Invasion of, of Privacy, Privacy was like in the top 10. Yeah. And uh, Missy yeah, Elliott was had, in like they, the top they, six or something. They had it over Aquemini, Doggy Style, Illmatic. I was like... Who the fuck made this list? I really want to know. Aliens isn't on the list. Like, like, AT Aliens is not in the top 200 rap albums of all time. Like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, I, I mean, it's fucking insane. I mean, all, I know you're from Georgia. Not not only are the people of Georgia mad, like, Marab Davalashvili's angry about that, and he's from the Republic of Georgia. <laughs> that's how that's how egregious an omission that is from the top 200 hip hop list. Yeah, I'm like, I'm not even saying Invasion of Privacy is a bad album, but I am saying it's not Illmatic. But okay, like I can reach uh, behind me and pull out a better album than uh, than Invasion of Privacy from my collection. Like right now, I just, like any random hip hop album I pull out is going to be better than that. Probably so. All right, let's get to the second part of this story. So Aljamain Sterling put out a video either yesterday or two days ago where he basically says, "Yes, that is the fight that's been offered. That's the fight that the UFC is looking for." But quote. There's no fight until there's ink on paper, and as of right now, my contract is exactly the same. There has been no escalator in this fight. I'd like to think I played uh, my part, did the right things, and even allowed myself to be the bad guy in the last outing with Jan and help play up the storyline. So one would think that being a company man would actually help you in the long run. So I did my job. As of right now, I'm training, hoping that we come to some type of agreement to give some type of pay bump, which naturally happens in all the contracts. Last thing I'll say on this, quote, for me, I want to make sure that we get the deal right before we just jump into another fight because at the end of the day, I climbed through the ranks, I worked my ass off, and I played my position in terms of helping to promote the fights, which a lot of these guys don't even do. I'm here to be a company man at the same time. I want to look out for my best interest. There's a fine line where there's a balance where getting both of those done can happen. Now, Aaron, here's my question to you. I guess there's a couple of these. One, do you think that this is going to work for him? like this uh, holdout or whatever whatever, whatever you want to call this effort of his to get more. Now, for folks who may not understand, let's say you sign with the UFC, and they, I'm, I'm just going to make up a number. Let's say they give you $10,000 to show, 10000 to win, and if you win in your next fight, the contract might say, should you win in your subsequent fight, we'll bump it to 15 and 15 and then 20 and 20 if you keep winning or wh whatever the escalation may be. I'm not saying that those are the exact numbers, but that's the idea in mind. What he's saying is, I was a defending champ in my last fight. I am now into the second one. There's no escalator. He's still on the championship deal, which means he would make money off of pay-per-view. But the championship deal itself has no escalator in it. That is what he is asking for. So the first question would be, again, 
Do you think this will work? Second of all, this is the thing that drives me fucking nuts. I have zero issue with him holding out if that's what he wants to do. I think that these guys have short careers and they need to make the best decisions for themselves. I didn't think he was going to beat Jan and he proved me totally wrong. He is entitled to seek his fortunes in the best way possible. But how many times do we have to see fighters be like, oh, I'm a company man and then it didn't get rewarded in the long run? Why do they keep doing this? I'm not saying being antagonistic with the UFC is a solution either. But this idea that like, oh, if I scratch your back, they'll scratch yours. Dude, there is no evidence for that, or at least very, very little. Yeah. And it only happens to certain guys who are like favored sons, which he's not necessarily been with UFC management. Just unpack this for me. What do you see as his cause? Do you see it as legitimate? Do you think it will work? Well, how, how many favorite sons have there actually been over the years? Like, you probably count them on your two hands. But uh, I hope it works. I, I don't think it's going to work, though. And I, I, it's just because time and time again, we've seen this happen. And the way that the UFC approaches these things is like the train is always ready to leave the station, right? Like, you're either going to be on the train or you're not going to be on the train. It's up to you. Because the UFC fans seem to have no issue with the UFC. And it hasn't happened that often because usually they come to some sort of amicable, uh, amicable agreement. But if the UFC said, you know what, we're going to do TJ Dillashaw versus Piotr Jan next for the title. And uh, Aljamain Sterling has not agreed to our contract terms. And that's the way it's going to be. You, you wouldn't hear that big of an outcry. The problem with it, I mean, the UFC have built an interesting system here. Because it's a system where, in my opinion, the, headline, the champions are actually underpaid when you compare it to other combat sports. But the 95% of the roster that make up non-champions and non-top five guys that, that aren't established, they're actually making a lot more in comparison to what like the, the boxers that would be on prelims would make in the sport. So the majority of the roster as a result of that is relatively happy with where they're at. So the champions are the ones that are going to be making the stink all the time. But because there's only one championship belt and they always have someone who's willing to step in if they need to, if, if they're unable to reach terms... They kind of always have that leverage over the champions. So I think leverage is an important thing to have in MMA. And, and it's really hard for fighters to get that leverage. Um, almost impossible, really. So I do hope it works out for Aljo. I do hope that they end up paying him more. I think that his performance against Jan was phenomenal. And he proved that he is the best bantamweight in the world right now. So I, I'd say pay the man, but it's not my wallet. The other part I would say to me when we talk about leverage, it's like what real leverage is there? Now... To be clear, uh, Sterling as champion, I would agree that relatively speaking, that might be the most amount of leverage that he has, at least to date, with the UFC, right? He has climbed the ranks, they put a belt around his waist, and he has a contract where he gets pay-per-view points. That puts him in a pretty prestigious and rare position. On the other hand, like, what is your I dare you moment? Like, do you dare them to take the title from him? Because if they did... Granted, there might be some outcry online, but do we substantively think, A, that the fans would revolt, because I don't, or that B, if they put a, if they stripped him and then gave the title shot to, I don't know, Sandhagen and Jan or something like that. I'm oh, sorry, not Sandhagen, but let's say Dillashaw. Dillashaw versus Jan or something. And then the winner of that became champion. Would the fans rightfully, A, protest in the marketplace, or B, suggest that Dillashaw, if he won, let's say, wasn't actually the champion. Not not really, not really. So what you're basically able to say is, okay, I've occupied a pretty important position. It would not be great for either party to do this, but there's really nothing from a from a uh, casualty of business standpoint, like what what bad consequence might happen to stop them. And so what leverage do you really have? Francis has more leverage. Francis, as the existing heavyweight champion, 
at the end of his run. Now, that's leverage. That may not work either because the UFC doesn't like to be leveraged. But if you're an existing champion <laughs> on a contract and you don't like it, again, I am in no way saying you shouldn't pursue the vision of finance that you have for yourself. But I do think that even championship-level fighters seem to overrate the amount of leverage that they have relative to what the UFC can actually do or get away with. Yeah, like I said, the train will leave the station and the fans seem to always be willing to jump on that train. So that really takes away any sort of leverage that you might have. And it's it's a really sad reality of the situation, but it is the reality. And I think that that's what makes it so problematic in these situations where you look at boxing and you see these these guys that are headlining cards making millions of dollars if you're a champion in the ufc you want that that's that's what you have worked so hard to to achieve is to achieve championship levels so that you can take care of yourself and your family in the long run right but again i think that the system allows it so that the majority of the ufc fighters are happy with what they're making because they look at other combat sports and what the the people on that i guess part of the totem pole are making you, well, just to stop you there you think the majority of ufc athletes are happy because in my experience that is not true well, I, I would think, say I would I, say listen, I would I've say many, a lot of different but not fighters. The majority. That are, I think that a lot of the fighters that I've spoken to on entry, I've spoken to them off the record that are on entry level contracts, and I've asked them like, "Are you happy with what you what you're making?" Um, and a lot of them are because they look at what they would be making in boxing, and you're talking about like five hundred, a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars. I think everybody always wants to make more money, but I think that the the big discrepancy in terms of fighter pay when people talk about boxing versus UFC are the people at the top, not the people at the bottom. And I think that there are more people at the bottom in the UFC and that as a result of that, they're actually pretty comfortable with what they're making because until they reach that championship level and they see what champions of other sports are making, that's their line of comparison. Yeah, I mean, I guess I've had a different experience, but um, neither here nor there. So let's, let's, let's game plan here. What actually happens? Do they fight in September, or do you really think Sterling goes to the mat? Because that's really what this hinges on. It's like, if you really want to execute your leverage, and they call your bluff, bro, you got to go through with it. So, how does this get resolved? Well, I'll tell you where the leverage lies. The leverage lies where if you go division by division, and you look at what is available for September. Because that's where you're going to have your leverage. Flyweight, probably not available. we got a flyweight um, interim championship bout that's happening at the end of July. So... To turn that around for September, unlikely. We're talking bantamweight here, so that, that's the topic of conversation. Featherweight, that's happening in July as well. Volkanovski has expressed an interest in fighting more times this year, but who knows, A, if he beats Holloway, how he comes out of that fight. So to say the July to September, again, two months, not super likely. Then you go to lightweight. Oliveira on the table. Who knows what's happening there? But if he's going to fight Islam, I expect that to be in Abu Dhabi. So maybe that's off the table. Welterweight's in August. Not going to happen. Um, you, you move on to middleweight. Also uh, happening in, uh, in July. Again, turnaround. Two months. Un unlikely, I would say. Um, because you also have that Pereira and Strickland fight that's happening at the end of July that's apparently going to de determine the number one contender. So that train moves on. Light, he light heavyweight. I'm thinking that's going to happen at MSG. Uh, if they're going to do a rematch, that would make a lot of sense. Um, and then, of course, heavyweight Francis is on the shelf. Um, who knows what the interim situation is? That's a possibility for September. That that would take away a lot of leverage from the bantamweight division. And then the women's divisions are kind of tied up. Also, you got Asparza and and Wei Li. Not the not the biggest box office draw. That could happen in September, but I don't know if it will. That I think that'll probably happen later in the year as well. Um, you know, women's flyweight that just happened could happen again in September. Who knows? 
Um, and then, of course, Bantamweight, that's end of July. And Featherweight, that Featherweight Champion is the Bantamweight Champion. So, or is fighting for the Bantamweight Championship, rather. So that's probably off the table, too. So that's where you can figure out your leverage. Is like, what are the UFC's other options? And how willing are they to make it in such a short period of time? Of course, the other option could be, last thing on this, they could also, and again, I'm not saying this would be great. I'm not saying this is inevitable. I don't know how likely it is. But we have to at least think of possibilities. And one of them is, hey, uh, okay, Aljamain uh, doesn't want to fight. And you know, you know how Dana will, will spin it. Like, Aljamain mm-hmm. doesn't yeah. want to fight. So if he doesn't want to fight, what can we do? We'll strip him or at a bare minimum, let him do what he's going to do and then just make an interim title between uh, Dillashaw and whoever else the reasonable top-ranked guy is they could put him against in short order and then just call it a day. It's like, now we're just going to have the interim champion yeah. defend it. Or they and can it's always the nuclear outright. option when you're against someone who has leverage. Yeah, right. I mean, they, they have... I mean, in the, in the end, who controls the titles? The promoter. Right. So right. they can do with them technically what they want. So we'll have to see how that goes. I do hope that they get around it, though, because that is a sensational fight. And again, I'll just say last thing on this. I, I, I Did you think Sterling was going to beat Jan in the rematch? Because candidly, one of the more times I had to like really reflect on my own biases, I was like, wow, I didn't think he was going to do it. And he did it. And he did it fairly. And in my judgment, squarely, I, I think that was the right call. It was impressive what he did. Oh, absolutely. It was very impressive. And I think a lot of people have written Aljamain off. And I think Aljamain's stock is probably pretty high right now, right? So, again, I think that the nuclear option would be to blow it up and put another another bout between Dillashaw and someone else. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, if, if I were to bet on it right now, will Aljamain Sterling be, be facing Dillashaw in September? I would be betting on the yes in that situation. Fair enough. All right, let's talk about what is going on tonight. This will air on uh, the, the prelim card will be on ESPN+. Plus. And then the main card will be on ESPN slash ESPN Plus. Of course, you can watch however you want. TSM. PFL 4. So this will be uh, part of the light heavyweight tournament where Carlos, uh, excuse me, Shoeface Antonio Carlos Jr. currently sits at the top of the leaderboard, although he shares it with Omari Akhmedov, who is also on this card, but he is the headlining fight of the prelims. But the headlining fight of the card is, I mean, what a story he has had. We, we thought that maybe at the end of last season when he lost, that might have been it. He comes back and faces Jeremy Stevens. Clay Collard is going to be headlining against Alexander Martinez, who has had some up and down moments in the PFL as well. What do you make of the career of Clay Collard? A somewhat sort of forgotten UFC name who kind of took advantage of some interesting matchups during the pandemic on top rank, beat up a bunch of people he was not supposed to, and has really turned into something of like a, I don't know if cult-like figures the word, but certainly a curious one just the same. The UFC signed Clay Collard. And then for whatever reason, the fight fell through and they let him go. Like, that, this for a second stint. And I think that, like, they've got to be looking back at that, thinking, what a mistake we made here. Because Clay Collard has exciting fight after exciting fight after exciting fight. And he's really built himself into, I would say, if you're looking at the stars of the PFL, he's a star of the PFL now, and he did it in the PFL. So kudos to him. I love watching this guy fight. His fights are always amazing. And, uh, yeah, he's headlining it, and I think he's probably going to win this fight. But, yeah, what a story. What a great story. And I know that he also dabbled in boxing and won a, a boxing match that he really wasn't supposed to win also. So a this guy's had quite a career the last couple of years. They put him against they put him against some young prospect. I I think it was either a Brooklyn kid or an Israeli kid, one of the two. And he was like a super high prospect. And he looked the part, dude. He was in good shape. He boxed really well. But dude, Clay Collard is just one of these guys who just finds sort of these clever ways to... Take advantage of little openings that no one else sees. And he managed to put it on him and get the decision win. That was like, wow, that was really not supposed to happen at all. Um, so kudos to him for just, I can't believe he's put it to the, 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 you know, for a guy who's 21 and nine outside of the UFC, he's got to be one of the more 
interesting combat sports fighters that there is. Also on this card, as I mentioned, Shoeface Jr. taking on Bruce Suto. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. He is also Brazilian. Shoeface is kind of heavily favored to win this one. The big one that I want to ask you about, Houshman Fio winning last season, back this one, unbelievable power. Don Madge was a guy I still have a lot of respect for. Thought he was going to win. He was winning until he wasn't because Manfio has sick mm-hmm. power. Taking on fellow Canadian, Olivier Aubin Mercier. How do you size this matchup? Manfio is the underdog again. Like, they keep making this guy the underdog, and he keeps winning, right? <laughs> but, I mean, against Olivier Aubin Mercier, he can take you down and just make your life absolutely miserable. Uh, Manfio, though, I mean, this guy's just looked so good in the PFL. And, uh, I mean, I, I think Aubin Mercier is a great fighter. I mean, he still trains with GSP very regularly. And I'm eager to see how he looks here, but... I mean, Manfio is a guy that, uh, if, you, if you see this guy with a plus sign bes- beside his name, right. uh, you have to take him, don't you? I mean, in this situation with him winning the tournament last year, with him being an underdog and beating every single guy on the way up, and then in the last fight against Don Madge being an underdog and winning that fight too, uh, what's it going to take for this guy to be to get some sort of respect here? I mean, that's the thing about it, right? It's like, dude, Don Madge to me looked like the overall more complete and better, certainly more technical fighter of the two. But fucking Manfio's power carries late in fights. It doesn't matter if you won the first two rounds. If he's, that dude still has the same kind of first-round power, whatever you want to call it, in the third. So I, I think uh, Olivier Aubin Marcier, great wrestler. Um, obviously very experienced, as you mentioned, you know, uh, as trained with the very best. I understand. I can understand why odds makers would have a high degree of confidence in his ability to win because I don't think that is sort of stated more generally unfair. But I would be nervous betting on this one uh, if I was betting on Mar- Marcia, Alvin, um, to Aubin Marcia, excuse me, just by virtue of this guy, Manfio, has the ability to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat at a moment's notice. One punch is truly all it takes. That's a dangerous guy to be betting against, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think his grappling is pretty good, too, right? I mean, he's he trains yes. with a lot of really... I mean, Natan Schultz is his best friend. He's actually... I can't remember if he's the stepfather... The, um, not stepfather, but the uh, godfather of Schultz's son or or vice versa. Like, that's how close these guys are. They almost had to fight each other last season. <laughs> they were scheduled to fight each other, and somehow that ended up falling apart, thankfully for them, because I'm sure that it's like having to fight a brother in there. But uh, yeah, Manfio, this guy just keeps winning. And he keeps uh, winning as an underdog. So I just don't know what to say about him. I, all I do know is that Oban Mercier is not an easy out. I don't know how many people have actually beaten him inside the distance. Um, and if a fight goes to a decision, chances are he's probably out-wrestled you and you're going to lose. So that's what makes this... I think this is the most intriguing fight tonight for sure. Uh, and I, I'm, I understand why you're pointing this one in particular out. A um, couple other fights to pay attention to on this one. There are some names. You mentioned Natan Schultz is on this card. He takes on Marcin Held. Marcin Held... UFC veteran, uh, Bellator veteran, great grappler. I don't think he ever quite fulfilled the promise that maybe we had had for him, but certainly nobody you could just uh, dismiss. Rob Wilkinson's on this card. Uh, Victor Pesta's on this card. Emiliano Sordi. The one fight that I do think is very interesting. How about Josh Silvera? Silveria. Mm-hmm. All right, Silvera. Excuse me, I can never pronounce. He's Conan's son. So if you ever yeah. seen the guy in like Amanda Nunez's corner, this big old muscular guy, you might have seen him. And actually, a lot of guys who fought at ATT he fought himself. Has been a coach there for a long time. Legend in the game. This is his son, and he's undefeated, and so far, he looks fucking awesome. He takes on, and I can never pronounce his last his first name, I don't know if it's Martine or Martine, Hamlet, uh, this Norwegian dude that all the PFL guys were kind of telling me on the side that this was the guy to pay attention to. I, I, he didn't quite fulfill the promise in the last season that folks had hoped, and now he takes on a very, very interesting prospect. I don't know if you know a whole lot about these two guys, Aaron, but if you're looking at Josh Silvera's future, 
Winning here would tell you a pretty strong amount about how far he could go. Beat Losing wouldn't necessarily tell you he couldn't go far, but I guess what I'm arguing is if he does beat Hamlet, that would be a very, very impressive win for a guy with, at this point, still less than 10 pro MMA fights. Yeah, they're not doing him any favors with the matchmaking because Martin Hamlet is very, very good. But I think that Silvera looks like an uber prospect. He looked great in LFA. I was surprised that he didn't end up in the UFC, ended up in, in the PFL instead, where he, I think he could... He's the dark horse, in my opinion, for this tournament. He could be. He could win a million dollars. He's a really, really good fighter. But this is going to be possibly the toughest matchup that he has in this division. I mean, Martin Hamlet is really solid, and he's a strong grappler as well. And that's where I think Silvera does most of his best work. So I'm eager to see how this one plays out, because this could end up being an indicator of how the rest of this tournament goes. All right, we move on to Bellator, who made just an absolute wave of announcements in the last few days and week or so. We got a bunch of them. Basically, for Bellator 283 and Bellator 284. We'll start with Bellator 283. I think this will be the first time they go to the state of Washington. Uh, they will be in Tacoma. This will be on July 22nd at the Emerald Queen Casino and Hotel. Here is what they have announced for that card. Patricky Pitbull, this will be the 155 champion, the older brother of Patricio, takes on Sydney Outlaw. Fine fight. I don't have a ton of love or hate for it. Sydney Outlaw is actually a pretty good fighter. Patricky is obviously, you know, a, 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 a great for excitement and a good fighter. I think it's not fair to compare him to his brother for a lot of reasons, but okay, he is the champion, and so scrutiny is there. The one that I actually really wanted to start with was not even Usman Nurmagomedov taking on Chris Gonzalez. I think Usman Nurmagomedov has a title future in his, uh, in his, uh, inevitable. it's inevitable for him. This is the one that I wanted to talk about. Douglas Lima taking on Jason Jackson. Now, Douglas Lima has been on a rough run. Former Bellator, welterweight champion, had some tough fights. Again, tried to go up and beat Musasi. It didn't work, but then went back to welterweight, and that hasn't worked either. He's a little bit long in the tooth. And Jason Jackson, I think this is the ass-kicking machine. Rashad Evans has <laughs> been right. chirping in our ear forever, Aaron, about this guy. and He's been on a tremendous win streak. Dude, this is a, I don't know, this is a crossroads fight for Douglas Lima if ever there was one. Yeah, perfect matchup for him. And, uh, you know, Jackson's an Ultimate Fighter alum, but he looks like a really... He's been doing great work in Bellator. And I think that if he's able to wrestle like he always does against Diego, uh, against uh, Douglas Lima, rather, this is going to be a tough matchup for Lima because he could find himself on his back for three rounds. And that's what the ass-kicking machine tends to do, is he tends to put you on your, ba on your back and make your life miserable. Um, and he could very well do that to Lima. But I think this is a perfect litmus test for Lima to see where he's at in his career because... He should be able to beat a guy like Jason Jackson. If we're, we're looking at the old Diego, uh, sorry, again, I keep saying Diego, his brother, Douglas Lima, if we keep looking at what he was able to do as the champion, he was able to beat these kind of fighters time in and time out for years and years and years. If he's not able to win this fight against Jason Jackson, and that's not a disrespect to Jason Jackson, he's an, an excellent fighter. And that's why I think this is a great litmus test for Lima. But if he, if he loses this fight, I just think that the best days of Douglas Lima are probably definitively behind him. Yeah, I would agree with that. So here was a great run that he had. He lost to Rory McDonald all the way back in 2018, but then this is talking about Lima. Then he rebounds against Koroshkov, beats him by rear naked choke. Then he beat Venom Page with that insane uh, mm -hmm. one-punch knockout he basically had. And then he rebounded and beat Rory McDonald back in 2019. Now, again, was that the very best Rory McDonald? Doesn't matter because that's who they put in front of him, and he did the job. But since then, it's just not been the same. He loses to Musasi, which, okay, you know, you went up a weight class, it's Musasi, fine. But then he goes back down to welterweight and lost to Yaroslav Amosov. 
who is, yes, very good, but we're talking about championship-level fighters at welterweight, so that's the problem. And then he lost to Michael Page in the rematch, and he looked kind of listless. By contrast, Jason Jackson has beaten uh, Kiichi Kunimoto. Okay, fine. Jordan Meehan, fellow Canadian of yours up there. Then he beat Benson Henderson. Then he beat Neiman Gracie. And then he beat Paul Daly. That's a nice run that he's been on. I agree with you. If It's not that Jason Jackson is some scrub. Far from it. But we're talking about Douglas Lima, the guy who is arguably the best welterweight that maybe Bellator's ever had. Certainly one of the more decorated champions. If he can't be Jason Jackson at this stage in his career, it might be curtains for him. Um, elsewhere on this card here, Aaron Bronstetter, I mentioned it. Usman Nurmagomedov, dude, it seems inevitable. I mean, inevitable that he's going to get a title mm-hmm. at 155 in Bellator. How high is your confidence for him? Oh, I mean, if you were to put him against Patricky Pitbull in the main event, he'd be a three to one favorite in my opinion. I mean, I, yes. I, I just think that's how how good this this kid is already. Um, am, I, am I? Is that a stretch? Do you think? Do you think I'm giving no. him too much credit? But I think that, I think they're that, slow rolling him because they really want to work on his development, and there's no real need to push him that fast. But I agree. Right. If it somehow popped up, I think he right? wins. These betting lines are based on perception. I think the perception would be that he would win the title today, right? That's how good he is at his young age. So it's going to be interesting to watch them slow, like slow play him, like you said, and, and have him beat a lot of these other kind of lower tier lightweights, build his name. But again, you have Nurmagomedov as your name, right? Like you can live and die off that <laughs> name, no matter where you're fighting, no matter what promotion you're in. Not to mention that he is, I mean, we have Saeed Nurmagomedov in the UFC, who isn't really part of Khabib's um, squad, so to speak. He trains out with Mark Henry. But I think that Usman Nurmagomedov being part of Khabib's clique, so to speak, that puts you in in pretty um, good company when it comes to MMA royalty. And I think that this is a guy that's going to win the championship probably sooner rather than later. Uh, once he gets a win here, I think that's when you're going to start him see him start to face the Sharks of that division. But uh, Sidney Outlaw gets the title shot. That's probably, I mean, he's ranked number one, next guy in line. I understand it. No, it's a good fight. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's just hard to pay close attention to it with what Nurmagomedov is doing on the side there. Sorry, People just love calling me right in the middle of the show. God, it drives me nuts. Um, <laughs> what I was going to say was, and you can see from kind of the pictures here, what sets Nurmagomedov, Usman Nurmagomedov apart is that he can strike his ass off and he can wrestle and he's got submissions and he's got a great corner and he's got good cardio and he doesn't take a lot of damage. That guy has got a, a title-winning future written all over him. So another step for him along that journey. Bellator 284, Aaron Bronstetter, will take place August 12th. This will be in Sioux Falls, South Dakota at Sanford Pentagon is the venue. On that card, Neiman Gracie, who I think has really, really elevated himself, but found himself just below that Bellator championship level. He gives those guys tough fights, but just a step behind. Taking on Goichi Yamauchi, who is something... uh, uh, Smoogie on Twitter brought this up once. He's something equivalent to... He's like Bellator's equivalent of Charles Oliveira. Now, that's not quite true because Charles Oliveira has obviously done really special things in ways that Yamauchi has not. But here would be the sort of key insight. Yamauchi is a devastating threat off of his back. He can wrestle a little bit. He's actually a pretty good striker as well. Moving up to welterweight to take on Neiman Gracie. Do you like this fight at all? It's a strange one because both guys are actually great on the floor and have improved their stand-up. It might just be a kickboxing affair the whole time. Yeah, I was very surprised by this matchmaking, to be honest. And uh, when I saw that that was the headliner, I was wondering where they came at this one from. Because 
like you mentioned, Yamauchi to me is probably one of my top five favorites to watch in Bellator. He just he's always putting on fun fights and doing a lot of wacky stuff that is able to find him victories similar to a Charles Oliveira. I wouldn't put him quite in, in that stratosphere, but and he's fought at 145 as well. So to move all the way up to 170 is very interesting to me. I think that Gracie's going to have a big size advantage. I think if it does get into grappling exchanges, I think the strength of Gracie is going to be something that he's going to have to his advantage. And I think even on the feet, that's probably where Yamauchi will have his best chance to win a decision. I don't think he's going to be able to find a finish against Gracie there. But this is going to be a very intriguing matchup for that reason. Is I don't really know how it plays out. But I do think that if it does get into grappling exchanges, that Gracie's just going to have a lot more strength. And that's going to be a big advantage for him. Oh, that's a fair point. I think he is a more natural 170-er. Now, to be clear, just for clarification's sake, Yamauchi did move up at Bellator 279, sort of a test case run for welterweight. It was his welterweight debut when he took on Levan Chokeli, which he armbarred inside the first round, which is what Yamauchi does. But to go from that to Neiman Gracie is one hell of a jump up, so that should be kind of interesting. Also on this card, it's worth noting as well, Valentin Moldovsky at heavyweight will take on Steve Mowry. Ilyamalem McFarlane is back in this contest, and I got to say, her last couple of fights, but certainly the last one has left me wanting a little bit. She lost to Juliana Velasquez, which was fine because Velasquez took the belt from her. It was a tough contest. She did what she had to do. But then she lost to Justine Kish after a long layoff. Now, she had lost in December of 2020 to Velasquez, and then she lost in April of 2022. So there's a bit of a layoff there. Fair enough. She might have had a lot of ring rust. But, geez, like, Justine Kish is not a ground specialist. McFarlane is... And there just wasn't a lot of that. How much do you attribute that to ring rust or some other kind of factor? What, what did you what did you make of like the hype that was there and then Kish just kind of rolling over it? Yeah, I was surprised by that. And I'm, I was also surprised that McFarlane didn't retire after that fight. Because I know she's been talking about retirement for some time, but it seems like quite the opposite. She wants a quick turnaround. She wants to get that bad taste out of her mouth, which I admire. So I'm, I'm curious to see how she does when she is tasked with a, another opportunity to get back in the win column. Um, I know she trains with Liz Carmouche, who's the current champion, so I don't know how that will end up playing out. I mean, Liz Carmouche, that, that win, thank, thank goodness the ref put Juliana Velasquez out of her misery. That was, a, that was quite the beating. I, I mean, I'm being facetious here. I hope, I hope people don't write in and say that Aaron obviously doesn't watch Bellator because that was a weird stoppage. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I'm eager to see what McFarlane does from here because I don't know if her and Carmouche are ever going to really face each other. So what, what, you know, what does she have to gain here? Aside from, I guess, getting that bad taste out of her mouth from losing in Hawaii, no less, to Justine Quiche. So, uh, very interesting uh, situation with her getting a, a quick turnaround. I'm surprised by that. And I think that the Moldovsky and, and, and Tall Steve fight is a great heavyweight fight. And I'm, I want to see how Steve, Ma- uh, Steve Mowry does now that he's facing a, you know, a higher level of competition. It'll be interesting. Again, I, I've I, in the past, either when people had layoffs or injuries or age or something, you can never disregard that. I think often in MMA the conversation tends to buoy fighters past that and maybe inadvisably where we don't really take full stock of of the things that might be slowing them down. At the same time, when someone's had a layoff like that and they have a sort of a subpar performance relative, not really to expectation, but to what you've seen from them previously, I do think that they're owed a mulligan. But I would say a loss here as well, if especially if she looks a little bit listless in it, that would be a bad sign. On the other hand, if she comes back and just you know beats the brakes off Bruna Allen, then... Um, you know, I'm willing to say well, the Kish fight may have been something of an aberration. That's all. Um, okay. Your favorite topic, my favorite topic, VC's favorite topic. Let's do a very quick boxing roundup if we can, uh, Aaron Bronson. We don't have to spend a ton of time on it. 
Uh, this was reported by Mike Coppinger at ESPN. We haven't had it independently confirmed, but it is sort of getting out there that Oleksandr Usyk, who was the guy who's done the cruiserweight king and, of course, had beaten Anthony Joshua, and it was a huge upset for some people, although not for folks who paid a lot of attention, he will have a rematch with Anthony Johnson set for Jeddah, Saudi Arabia on August 20th. Did you see their first fight, Aaron Bronstetter? How excited are you for the rematch? I did see the first fight, and I actually thought that Usyk was going to win that fight. I thought that his boxing was just going to be a lot sharper and crisper. And I think that that's what's going to happen in the rematch, too. Um, I, I think that this is just a really bad matchup for Joshua. And I, I want to see how it goes, because I think that an Usyk and Tyson Fury fight would be a lot of fun. I think that that's the heavyweight fight to make if you are going to pull Fury out of retirement, if he is indeed retired. I mean, it seems like a very boxing retirement, like it's a, it's a <laughs> I'm retired until you pay me retirement. And he said right. recently on Instagram, I think he says he wants a half a bill for his next fight. Uh, only in boxing do you have that kind of leverage. But I think that if Usyk is able to beat Joshua again, that would be a really fun fight to make. I, I totally agree. Now, I thought Joshua would do it just by virtue of the size being a little bit too much. But it turned out that what was... We all knew that Usyk was super crafty and probably the better pure boxer of the two. But what I thought was going to happen was that the physicality over time would weigh on him. But it didn't. It didn't. It never materialized. Now, obviously, since then, Joshua is changing trainers, akin to something like what Fury did between the first and second Wilder fights. So I am curious to see what effect that has. Um, Usyk, of course, going back to Ukraine to fight for a while. Who knows how much that plays some role in 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 limiting any kind of improvement that he wanted or or however that may manifest itself. But August 20th is what they're headlining that for. I expect Usyk to win, and I agree. I would love to see an Usyk-Fury fight, but that might be the case where if Usyk has better boxing smarts than Joshua, I doubt he has better boxing smarts than Fury. And Fury is also big, which makes him this fucking unicorn out there. <laughs> I yeah. do favor Fury over Usyk. Do you as well? I I would agree with that, but I just think that it would be, from a matchup standpoint, one of the tougher opponents you could throw at Fury. And who knows how much well Fury's training right now, or if he even is training at all, who knows. But I just think that that would be probably the best heavyweight fight you could make, again, if Usyk is successful against Joshua. And I mean, even if you could put Usyk and Wilder together, I'm not that familiar with the the... X's and O's of who has whose rights and what network they're on and all that stuff. I don't know if that's a complete impossibility, but that would be a really interesting one for me as well. That one should be on DAZN, at least in the United States. I don't know how it would air in Canada because everyone's got a different, uh, you know. Did we get it here too on DAZN? I believe. Okay, so again, but you guys have like NFL on DAZN, right? No, NFL is on TSN, the home of the NFL in Canada, my friend. Ah, okay. I've been given bad information then. All right. So, <laughs> yes, it's cer certainly in North America, then that will air on DAZN. Something to keep in mind. Um, we'll see how that goes and if that hold to that date and to, uh, to that location. Of course, the rematch between Andy Ruiz and Anthony Joshua also took place in Saudi Arabia. Uh, okay. This one I'm very curious about, and I'm glad that we have a Canadian on because I do have a couple questions about this. The biggest boxing fight of the weekend, Artur Baterbiev defending, actually, well, this is going to be a unification with Joe Smith Jr. It'll be for the WBA, IBF, and WBO light heavyweight titles. Baterbiev currently sitting at about a minus 750 favorite, Joe Smith plus 500. Now, for folks, they'll be like, oh, that's crazy wide odds. Not so much in boxing. Yes, those are wide, but boxing tends to have much wider odds than MMA. It's a little bit less chaotic, so you can kind of have some sense about things. Baterbiev, natively Chechen, but moved a long time ago to Montreal, Canada. He is, in fact, a Canadian citizen. He is best friends with George St. Pierre. They've actually done some features on this together. Let me ask you this first. 
How big of a star is Baterbiev? And for folks who may not know anything about him, he is the only boxing world champion with a 100% finishing rate. This fucker has never seen the yeah. scorecard. He's the real Edgar Berlanga. Say again? He's the real Edgar Berlanga. The one that people yes. should be talking about this cleaning He's the real out. monster. That's right. Yeah, well... He's big in terms of boxing popularity, but in terms of like the general Canadian, I don't think that they're that aware of Baterbiev. And I think that that's a real shame because he does represent this country now and has been doing so in spectacular fashion. And I think that the line in this fight, even though Smith is a solid boxer and has a good resume in his own right, you know, he, he didn't get knocked out by Bivol. And I know Bivol is more of a technical striker, but if Baterbiev can finish him, I think that will speak volumes about just how good this guy is, you know, more than it already has been spoken of. So uh, I'm eager to see what he brings to the table here because Baterbiev, I think, is a really strong, under-the-radar story um, among non-boxing fans in Canada who they should really become aware of. I don't know if he'd be eligible for the Lou Marsh Trophy. The Lou Marsh Trophy is... Uh, the best Canadian athlete every single year is, is awarded something called the Lou Marsh Trophy. I don't know if he's had eligibility there, but he's somebody who should certainly be considered. Who are the most Canadian? Like, okay, among active fighters, boxers or MMA, who would you put in like top three, top five current active combat sports athletes who are Canadian and also really popular in Canada? Well, I mean, yeah, that's a tough reach right now because we don't have a whole lot of them. I mean, if you look at the UFC... Like, the best female Canadian is probably Jasmine Jastadavicius, who's fighting this weekend, and I'm sure not a lot of people know much about her, but we don't have a ton of big names. I guess Rory McDonald would still be considered a big name, in, you know, over in the PFL. If you're talking about the best men's mixed martial artist from Canada, like, Rory is still probably at, at the peak right now. I mean, I think Tanner Bozer's made a good name for himself uh, over in the heavyweight division. Uh, Marc-Andre Berrio, I know he suffered a loss. Charles Jordan is tons of fun to watch, and I think his name is going to become more and more popular as we go. You know, we just lost two Canadians from the UFC roster in Tristan Connolly and TJ Laramie. So we're kind of grasping at straws right now in terms of finding <laughs> combat sports athletes. I mean, I know uh, Custio Clayton just lost as well. He was a, a solid Olympian for uh, Canada and has been a good ba uh, professional boxer since transitioning. But he, he suffered a, a loss recently, so... We don't have a, a ton of big-name talent in the combat sports space right now as we did have when GSP was, was in his peak. And really, MMA was such a massive thing here. Dana White was calling Canada, you know, the, the mecca of MMA and the best fans in the sport. I don't know if those days are going to be coming back anytime soon because we just don't have a ton of big-name prospects right now. But if you think of the heyday... I guess 10 years oh ago, we God. had Bazooka Joe in kickboxing. We had GSP in terms of boxing. We had John Pascal. And um, we had Adonis Stevenson, who I believe was undefeated for a long time, or at least on a really, really long streak. These days, not so much. Dude, it wasn't even just that. Like, I rem Correct me if I'm wrong. I might have this wrong, and if so, I'll eat crow for it. I, I remember Michael Bisping versus um, uh, the Special Forces, Tim Kennedy. Wasn't that in Canada? Was I think that was in French Canada? If I'm not even if I'm if I'm mistaken, it wasn't just that there was like, dude, you could swing a dead cat and hit a top fifteen, you know, Canadian in the rankings. It wasn't just that there was lots of good fighters, but the market was super hot. I was there when Saint Pierre fought Jake Shields in Toronto, and it was like the biggest show ever at the time. I think it was like fifty thousand people there. Still dude, is in North America the, the highest attendance. Say again. It still is the most attended UFC uh, show in North American history. It, it, it was crazy. And then, like, 
to, to, if you lived through like St. Pierre's heyday and even like towards the end of his run, there were still tons of other Canadians. They did Tough Canada. They did all kinds of stuff. To be where we are today, where you know you're kind of like, dude, I, I I have a lot of respect for Tanner Boss, or I have a lot of respect, especially Charles Jordan, who I think has real potential to do something kind of important. These are great fighters, don't get me wrong, but St. Pierre, and I granted that's a hard standard to hold. But the big point here is what, uh, Aaron? It's that it's that in between space. There's not a whole lot of people occupying it, and those are pretty elevated spaces. And there's hardly any shows there. It's a weird time. You can't. I'm telling you, if you had told me in 2010 that Canada would be like this today, I would never, ever have believed you. Yeah, I, and I agree with you because wouldn't you just assume that GSP in his heyday would have inspired a lot more young mixed martial artists to come up? So when is that going to happen again? Like, when when are we going to start seeing that? I, I do know from uh, speaking with Rich Chow, who runs um, the program formerly known as uh, Wimp to Warrior, that the enrollment in Canada has been really, really high for people getting into the program, which is just a really positive sign to still see that, that the Canadians are, are still passionate about the sport. We're just waiting for that next one. And even when I look at the regional scene, there aren't even that many that are coming up where you could be like, yeah, that's the guy, that's the next one, or that's the girl, that's the next one. So that, that's the part that really makes it difficult for me covering the sport is because I'm not seeing the talent on the regional scene that I'd like to see that you could point to and say, yeah, that person is the one that we need to keep an eye on. Hmm. Well, anyway, getting back to the fight, we'll wrap it up here. Long story short, better be of a absolute fucking hammer. This was the guy that like Canelo was like, oh, I want to fight him. And then he loses, of course, to Bivol. And Bivol is probably a better pure boxer, certainly a better outside boxer than better be of. But better be of is a fucking hammer. You look at this dude. He looks like he is chiseled out of stone. He does this bit when he trains to work on his wrist strength. If you've never seen it, he takes a normal barbell, which is 45 pounds, which is not by itself so heavy, but then he'll rotate it over his own hand and catch it and keep it rotating. I cannot possibly explain to you how strong your wrist and arm has to be to do something like that. That is fucking crazy. And then on top of it, he's good in middle and right up front. He backs people up again. He has a 100% Finishing rate. Here's the one catch everyone needs to pay attention to. Joe Smith Jr. can crack two, especially at long range. So the real key here for me, Aaron, if you want to add anything on top, the real key here for me is if Smith has any hope of winning, yes, better be if does get hit a lot, and he has been dropped before, but he finishes everybody off. He has dynamite power. I actually think he's a little more technical, and the real key here is if Smith can't get him off of him, if Smith can't get better be of to back up off of him and then back up inside the real estate of the ring, hard to see how he wins. Good power, but that may not be enough. That's my assessment. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. And I mean, like you mentioned, those exercises with the, the barbell, I did a couple of reps before the show. It really, uh, it is very difficult. <laughs> I, I bet you did, he man. All right, let's do a little <laughs> segment we like to do here called Buy or Sell. We'll throw in a couple of headlines in the combat sports space. space excuse me. And we're going to ask Brian, uh, Brian, Jesus, we're going to ask Aaron Bronstetter if he's buying it or if he's selling it. I don't know if we have any graphics for it. Oh, there we do. We got some graphics for it. All right. Okay, Aaron, let's go to this first. Zabit Magomed Sharapov retires. Can you believe it? He makes it official, takes himself out of the USADA testing pool, officially tells the UFC he wants to retire. We'll talk about the, some of the more impl bigger implications in a second. But the question for you is this. Are you buying or selling that Zabit will go down as the biggest what-if in MMA history. I'm going to buy that. And I was thinking Ooh. of some other options earlier today. 
when I was giving this some thought. And the ones that came to mind were, um, well, one is Tatiana Suarez, but we can't really shut the door on that yet. She's still only 31 years old. But if you remember the absolute beating she put on the current strawweight champion, I mean, if she was healthy throughout her career, we're talking about perhaps the female goat. I mean, she's that good. Um, Another one was TJ Grant. I remember at the time he was supposed to be facing Benson Henderson in Milwaukee and ticket sales were lagging. And they ended up, uh, he ended up, you know, getting hurt in training. And they put Pettis in, and there was this big conspiracy theory going around the sport that they paid TJ Grant to step aside so that they could have the hometown kid sell tickets in Wisconsin. And we just never saw TJ Grant again because it was a legitimate injury. The other one is Chris Holdsworth, who was just smashing people on the Ultimate Fighter, undefeated, got a concussion in training, and we haven't seen him again. In fact, I think just last year he pulled out of the USADA pool. Um, I would have loved to see what that kid could have done if he had been given a full career. But if you compare those to Zabit, I'm going to buy Zabit as the biggest what-if because in a division that needed more contenders, he could have been one, and we never got to see it, unfortunately. He wants to become a doctor now, so good on him. I think one of the reasons I think I had read, I think Ariel Hawani wrote this, was that um, one of the things was that Zabit couldn't find himself having the desire to hurt people anymore, right? And when that goes Mm. away, I mean, you're putting yourself in a dangerous position in this sport. No doubt about it. If you, don't, if you get the, some of this has to be bloodlust, and if you don't have it, it's probably a good time to bow out. There's a couple other names I would throw in there, not like the casual fans would know or care, or that it would change the answer about what if. But there was like a series of gold medalists that Pride just burned through. They would get them from the, the Olympics and then just give them like the worst possible matchup in their <laughs> MMA debut. Or there was a couple of like NCAA, like Mark Ellis. There were some NCAA Division One national champions. They just kind of had a rough run early and then just bowed out. That's not the same as what Zabit did, who really, as we talked about earlier, beat Calvin Cater and has done some pretty impressive things. So he actually might be the biggest what if. I will say if Tatiana Suarez doesn't come back, I might put her ahead by virtue of what she had done against now what we know to be known champions. But if it's not her, it, it might be Zabit. All right. Greg Hardy. Yay. Has inked a deal with BKFC, which probably is a, a better shock. fighting style. Say again? What a shock. Yeah. Who could have well, seen I this coming? I will say this. I will say this. They have shorter rounds. They have a small fighting surface. He is athletic. He is heavy-handed. When he's not gassed completely, he can strike pretty well. I will give... So I'll say that for him. BKFC is probably better for him than MMA. But here's the question for you. Well, actually, I kind of set it up. Buy or sell is BKFC is the very best landing spot for Greg Hardy at this stage in his career. I'm going to buy because they have money. And I think that this is more conducive to how he fights. Now, do they allow inhalers between rounds? I don't know. But I think that in, in terms of what he can be doing in combat sports, this probably makes it the best landing spot for him because I think he's going to get paid the kind of money that he would get for being an attraction. You know, that's kind of what he is at this point. That's kind of why the UFC brought him on. And he did have some good early success in the UFC. But I think that this, to me, was like the obvious landing spot for him. BKFC don't seem to have much of a concern about the the backgrounds of those that they sign. They tend to throw a lot of money around. And I think that Greg Hardy is going to be an attraction for them. So uh, to me, it made all the sense in the world for him to sign there. You know what's funny is I... I've not looked at the metrics up close recently, but I wonder, he certainly he certainly was not, it's not fair to say he wasn't a figure of attraction either for positive or negative reasons. He was. There were people interested in him for, for a variety of purposes. But I do wonder if over time the popularity, certainly the intrigue factor declined, 
right? Because the performances were uneven. The losses were weird. And again, the losses being weird also kind of added to the, the car crash factor. But I have to say, leaving the UFC the way he did, I, it's not that I don't agree. I, I would buy this as well. I do think it's a right signing for BKFC given the reality of things. But I, I do wonder how many people have checked out on him by virtue of the very, let's call it, uneven run he had in MMA. Still an, attract, still an attraction at the box office, but I don't think what he once was. I don't, I don't believe that. Yeah, I think that that's fair to say. And and how much is he going to actually train for this and put... Right. Every, I mean, I think he's guaranteed a lot of money here, and I think he's going to just get in there and let instincts take over. Not that he's not going to be training, but I think that's probably how it plays out. All right, buy or sell. Now, let me read the setup to you. Shavkat Rachmanov says Hamzat Shemaev was gifted his win over Gilbert Burns due to popularity. In fact, he told the uh, sports outlet Fanatics View, quote, I think it was a very equal fight, in my opinion, but Hamzat, I believe, got the win because he's more popular. Maybe that's why he was awarded the win. Now, I'm not asking you to weigh in on that, but here is the buy or sell. <laughs> buy or sell. Rachmanov and Hamzat will fight each other no later than the end of 2023. I'm going to sell on that one. I think that, that there's going to be a bigger buildup to that one. And not to mention that a lot can happen between now and then. I, the part that I like is just picturing the judges being case. I'd be like, yeah, let's go. Let's go. Hamza, we're going to give them the decision. We want this guy to win. That's not, that's not really how things work um, in, in combat sports. But, uh, well, I mean, in certain combat sports. But I think that, right. uh, yeah, I think that with uh, Shavkat and Hamza, that, there's going to be a big buildup to that one. I think 2023 is a little premature. I, I would guess 2024 probably. At, at, you know, I, I think Shavkat needs two or three more big wins to get into the title picture, whereas I think Hamzat's kind of already in the title picture. Yes, no doubt Hamzat is ahead. I'm going to buy this one. I'm going to buy this one because we still have, that would basically be 18 months, right? Because we have basically half the year left, a little bit less or whatever it is. Yeah, a little bit less. And then we have the full year of 2023. Rachmanov has a fight against Neil Magny coming up, which I think is going to be the biggest test. Now, of course, he has to pass that. And if he doesn't, then all of this is off. But I tend to think that he probably will. And I just end up thinking that Rachmanov will see. I mean, I was told he was he slow rolled his UFC matchmaking at first to get through that rookie contract, basically, and he got a second one, and now he wants to begin climbing because I guess this contract's a little bit more profitable. I just see great potential in him, and I think he's going to find a way up there by that time. But certainly we don't know. Uh, all right, Aaron Bronstetter, buy or sell? Now let me set this up. Charles Oliveira wants Conor McGregor next. In fact, here's what he told ESPN. Quote, It would be a very good fight for me, Oliveira said of a McGregor contest. It would put a lot of money in my pocket, and at this moment, that's the most important thing. And it would also be really good for my legacy, for me to have in my story. Regardless, if he's coming from defeat or not, he's a guy who has made history, so I think it would be great, but it's not just up to me. If it were up to me, the fight would already be happening. Buy or sell, Aaron Bronstetter. Conor McGregor's first fight back will be against Charles Oliveira. This is a hard sell. I think that uh, we're going to see the Islam match in October in Abu Dhabi. I think that makes a lot more sense. And I think that the McGregor-Chandler fight is starting to have a lot more legs. Like That that one makes a lot more sense to me from an entertainment standpoint. Now, the thing is, if Conor McGregor calls the UFC and says, I'm coming back only to fight Charles Oliveira, that's the only fight I want right now. Um, do they make that fight? Yeah, most likely. I would say they most likely make that fight. But I think the more likely thing that he does is he stays at 170 pounds and faces somebody who moves up from 55. 
um, like a Michael Chandler type situation. But we'll we'll see how it goes. I, I think that should he ask for the fight with Oliveira, he would probably get it. But I don't think that that's the the direction they're going to go in. Who would you favor to win? Oh, between Oliveira and McGregor. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd favor. I'd put Oliveira as probably a minus three or four hundred favorite. I mean, mm. listen, McGregor's got the power, but the game plan is already here. We saw what happened when Gaethje tagged him. He just goes to his back. He would do the exact same thing against McGregor, would he not? Like, McGregor would have to put him out, out, in order to win that fight. And what are the odds of him being able to do that at 155 pounds, where we saw his knockout against Alvarez? It took some time. It's not like he was cleaning people out like he did uh, at 145 pounds with his power. That's really his only path to victory against the Charles Oliveira. Uh, do you not agree? Like, he would basically need to put his lights out early in the fight. The thing is, Oliveira is, he is, he's not, I mean, obviously he's not nearly as defensively vulnerable as a Prohachka is, where he takes a lot of damage, but, you know, kind of rallies after he gets hit a little bit. But the fact that he did, he got hurt against Chandler, I mean, he's been hurt a million times. I I wouldn't put the odds, um, minus 400, I couldn't go with you. Minus three, I could maybe follow. I would favor Oliveira, yes, is the short answer. I might be a little bit higher on McGregor's chances. I will also sell. I just, it seems the UFC doesn't want it. They'd rather have Chandler get it, or to your point, Islam Makachev get it, or something like that, um, depending on how things play out. But but it would be interesting. It would, certainly would be interesting. All right. One more buy or sell on these. This is uh, Gilbert Burns calling out Jorge Masvidal for a stand-up-only fight. This is what he says. Uh, quote on the Jorge fight. I can sign the contract. No takedowns, Burns said. Let's just do it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to putting on a show. Another crazy fight. Another crazy finish. And I do believe I can strike with Jorge Masvidal. Buy or sell the UFC. Not that they were making no takedown fight. But Mm -hmm. buy or sell. The next fight for both of these guys is going to be each other. I mean. Oh, we lost Aaron's audio. We'll come back to him in just a second. All right. Oh, he's back. There we go. We got Aaron Sorry, back. Sorry, yeah, we I got, got my, uh, my battery warning on my camera here. But uh, yeah, ultimately, I just think that um, when you when you look at this particular matchup, it would have to be a gentleman's agreement. Like, they basically have to say, we're not going to do any takedowns, and that doesn't really hold water. But I think in a stand-up fight, that would be a really intriguing fight. And I think that that is the next matchup to make for both these guys. I think that Gilbert has earned a big-name opponent. And I think that when you think big-name opponent, Masvidal, I still think, has the name value, but he also needs to get back in the win column. He needs a, a fight against a contender at 170 pounds. And I know his dream is to ultimately face Usman again. Both these guys want to fight Usman again. So putting them against each other, you can certainly do worse. So I'm going to buy that as the next matchup. Uh, all right. We'll wrap this up here pretty quickly. Uh, Mikey, put it in the chat. Are we doing dead wrongs or should we wait for BC? But before we get an answer for that... Real quickly, this is not a buy or sell. We'll just add this as a add-on um, odds and ends note. Sandhagen, Corey Sandhagen, is rumored, targeted, to be fighting Song Yadong in September. Your early, if you were the odds maker for that, how would you lay the odds? I'd put Sandhagen at minus 145. Ooh, I think I like that. Tell me why. I think that if you look at how that fight goes... He has a lot of advantages in that fight, and I think that the volume would be a lot for Song to handle. I'm not going to make these last-name jokes that everybody's going to pounce on here, so I'm just going to call him Song for the uh, the sake of this discussion. But, uh, yeah, I think that the volume would be a, a lot for Song to handle uh, because that's, that's what Sanhagen's really good at. And I think that if it goes to the ground, if Sanhagen has an advantage there, the thing about Song is that 
he's really overperformed in his recent fights. And I think he's getting better and better. So I think it's a very good matchup. I think it's a very tough matchup for Sanhagen. But I would, I would make him a small favorite in this situation. I think I agree. The big X factor, you're right, is the volume, the angles, the movement of Sanhagen, no doubt about it. He is tricky on the ground, as you also indicated. But Song Yudong has just incredible power. He is so athletic. And Corey Sanhagen, who I am very, very high on, I still really believe in his potential, he gets hit a little bit. He gets hit a little bit more than I would actually advise. Now, he's got a great chin, and he can kind of deal with it, and had, to this point has not totally derailed him. But... It could make this one interesting, and I agree. I, I had kind of written off Song Yudong as like an interesting, curious fighter that I don't know where he's going to go. And then his last few fights, he's been like dynamic as hell. I've really had to like walk back some of my uh, pessimism and skepticism about him. So that if they make that one, that is seems, and also it's an appropriate fight for Sanhagen, who lost to Sterling, who lost to what was the last contest? It was against um, uh, Jan as well, right? Where he's and Dillashaw. Where he's just kind of, or did he lose to Jan? I can't remember if he lost anymore. Certainly lost to Dillashaw. Yeah, he lost to Jan. Yeah, he lost yeah. to Jan. The point being is he was just a little bit of a step behind. Well, obviously, Sterling ran right through him. But in the other two cases, he was just a little bit of a step behind. And I thought he had to retool some things about his strategy. You know, giving up the bottom too easily, getting hit a little bit more than he should. This would be a really great test to see how much he's tightened some of those things up. And conversely, if Song Yudong gets the win here, it's the best opponent he could uh, will have beaten up to that point. So, Out of 10, how happy contest. are you that BC is not here for conversations about Yudong? Oh, God. Because we, we know it's how I, off the rails that... I mean, that that has train wreck potential. I know. I mean, BC would just... He's an HR violation every time he walks into the room. I just cannot believe we haven't been fired <laughs> yet, but it's pretty amazing just the same. Uh, all right, Aaron Bronsetter, it is always great to get you on the show. One more time, plug your work. Where can folks find you? What do you do? If they want more Aaron Bronsetter, which they should, how do they get it? Yeah, you can never get too much AB. So that's why I'm always happy to be on the show with you. But tsn.ca slash UFC is where you can find all of my uh, MMA coverage. Twitter.com slash Aaron Bronstetter is, again, kind of where all of it will live. And uh, I have a newsletter through Twitter, which is that their platform is called Review, where every week you'll get um, all of my interviews, my podcasts, my TSN Edge recommended plays in terms of the, the, the betting space. And I even put out an album of the week. So if you want to, if you want to hear what my album of the week is, you can get that on the newsletter as well. Lots of albums here around me that uh, I'm sure you would you would be glad to listen to if you're a music snob like I am. Hey, uh, did you like the new Corpse Grinder solo album? <laughs> yeah, you know I thought it was really good. Some really solid technical guitar work that you 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 really like to see from in the genre. And I think that uh, what's Corpse Grinder? What's let me ask you this. What is the wildest concert you've ever been to? Like, the, just a fucking rowdiest, like, where am I moment? Um, well, I've been to a lot of metal concerts because I was really into metal when I was younger. I, I got kicked in the head really badly at, like, a Coal Chamber concert where I might have gotten a concussion. Um, I've seen Slipknot, Slipknot live before a bunch of times. I'm trying to think okay. of, like, what the craziest concert I've ever been to where I was, like, feeling... I, I think I've seen Guar before at, like, a festival. Guar is like the a, best! Yeah, so that would that would probably would have been one of the uh, one of that's on the list for sure. I, I was telling Brandon Gibbs, I think his name was No Bunny, and I think he wasn't wearing any clothes playing on stage. No Bunny, he was opening for a band that I, I had never really heard of him before, but that was kind of a Jesus. weird one. I was telling Brandon Gibson this because he was taking uh, Lydia Warren, who made her pro debut at, at Jorge's show, um, Icon FC Three, which, which was in Richmond. I always tell folks this: if you ever go to Richmond, Virginia, you have to go to Guar Bar. 
the guys behind the band are all from Richmond, and they have a bar there called Guar Bar. It's in, um, I think, in uh, what's the name of the neighborhood? Like Jackson Heights, I think is what it's called. Anyway, it's actually not far from where the uh, well, the now commanders have their training facility, and uh, the food is incredible. It's the only place I ever I walked into the bar the first time. And they were playing Walk by Pantera on the jukebox. And I was like, motherfucker, I am home. This is amazing. <laughs> so Richmond, Virginia's Guar Bar, shouts to them. If you guys have never been, you got to go. Super cool. Super cool. Well, my wife and I are going uh, for our 15-year anniversary out to the East Coast of Canada. Maybe I can convince her that we could go to Guar Bar instead. Maybe, I think that sounds like a, a lot of fun. I think she'd really dig that scene. I think the fake blood on all the tables would really just kind of set the romantic mood. By the way, a bit of breaking news here. We didn't get to it on the show. Uh, Tony Kelly, who is fighting Adrian Yanez, missed weight 137 and a half, including with the towel. So the fight will go on, but he will be fined along the way. In the words uh, of right, Jerry Seinfeld, Aaron, that's a shame. Say again? In the words of Jerry Seinfeld, that's a shame. Yeah, that's a shame. All right, uh, Aaron, great job as always. Enjoy the fights tonight on PFL. Enjoy Better Beef Smith and, of course, UFC Austin tomorrow. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. And, um, yeah, dude, you're, you're, our, you're our Canadian correspondent. We love having you on the show. Well, like I said earlier, it's MK any day for me if you need me to fill in. So thank you for, for uh, having me. And uh, always a pleasure to do it. All right, for BC, who is not here, as a reminder, Showtime.com is the label that pays. Go to Showtime.com, get a 30-day free trial. If you like it, you can keep it. If not, you can bounce. Morningcombat.store for any of the merch you'd be interested in. And, of course, morningcombat at gmail.com is how you reach the show for Friday's Dead Wrongs, which we'll bring back when BC comes back, as well as Wednesday's fan subs, or if you just want to talk to the producers, that's how you do it. For Aaron Bronsetter, our great friend in the Great White North, for Brian Campbell, for Malka, for Showtime, for CBS Sports, I'm Luke Thomas. Enjoy the festivities this weekend. We'll talk to you guys on Monday. And until then, may all of your gains be loyal.